On this terrific episode of Starpod Log, we consider the contents of Starlog magazine from 1980 in issues 39 and 40. Mark McRae fills us in on what was going on with Saturday morning cartoons. Our UK correspondent, Anthony Rooney, gives us the British report and lets us know what was happening on the other side of the pond. Lou Melograna, Dr. Durant, and Max Overnighter considered not only the show, but also the toys and merchandising of the era in all aspects of The Incredible Hulk. Edward German enlightens us on the classic sci-fi series Tom Corbett, Space Cadet. Stuart Foley joins in to reminisce about the mail-order items that were available in the 1980 merchandise guide. Plus, The Incredible Hulk. Popular TV shows and video games from 1980. Mark Hamill, giving us behind-the-scenes information on The Empire Strikes Back. Battlestar Galactica. Mork and Mindy. Buck Rogers. And more on this episode of... Starpod Log. Greetings and felicitations. Hip, hip, hurrah, tally-ho. Hey, my little Georgia Pete. Hey, Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and retro pop culture. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago. But we leave the Star Trek-related content to our other podcast, Starpod Trek. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog magazine, or read it for free online at archive.org. If you would like to comment on a subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows? We might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. We will be flying overseas and landing in the U.K. We are elated to be attending the London Film and Comic-Con. That begins July 8th through the 10th. 2022 at Olympia in London. What do you think about that, baby doll? Are you excited? I'm just over-the-top excited about this one. (laughs) I mean, this would be our first time attending a convention in England. I know. Well, it's my first time even going to England. But yeah, there's going to be a lot of great guests at this con. The most exciting thing for us as Americans going to a convention in the UK is the fact that there are celebrities that virtually never come to the United States. The British take it for granted how many Doctor Who guests attend the conventions over there. A lot of these that, you know, that we've never seen before because they don't come to the U.S. So, yeah, it'll be great to go over there and see them. Also, a lot of minor character actors from the Star Wars saga are going to be there. Again, Elsa Tree Studios, based in England. It makes sense. It'll be great to see these... Like, like actors that have just never been on, like, on our radar before because they don't come to cons here in the U.S. And we already have confirmation 
that we're going to be meeting up with one of our UK co- correspondents, Shane Poole, while we're in London. And we can't wait to see so many of our listeners at the convention as well. It'll be great fun. Can't wait. And then we head back to the United States. We are still getting ready for the grandest of them all, Dragon Con. Anything special you're looking forward to this Dragon Con, baby doll? Well, just going back and seeing all our friends. Yeah, we know we're going to be doing some panels. It's so exciting. Just the build-up. We're less than 100 days away. Can you believe it's catching up that quickly? Yeah, can't believe it. And, Ellen, we're also doing the parade. Now, now they still haven't announced uh, very many guests, but we know they still have some lined up that they're going to announce. Starlog Magazine, issue number 39, cover date October 1980. This is the special TV issue. And I love it when they have these annual events. The entire issue is dedicated to television. Not only current television, that is the 1980-81 season, but also has some flashback articles too. Did you always like these special TV issues? I did, because TV was always my thing. I mean, more than movies. I was, you know, sitting sitting in front of the TV all the time. Well, because we're of the era where most of the time families didn't go to the movies too often. It cost money, but TV was free. And we were able to watch all these awesome shows, and this is the era where a lot of sci-fi shows were on TV, and we all watched them. And I thought this was a great cover, too. It, it kind of looked Christmassy with the green background. That's what I always thought. Buck Rogers, your boyfriend, Gil Gerard. Oh, yeah. Great smile on that one. So a lot to look forward to in this issue. Communications. Letters to Starlog Magazine. Patty Rethor from Richmond, Vermont. Harrison Ford is one of the most underrated actors in show business, and it's nice to know that Starlog recognizes his talent. His numerous roles have brought great joy to me, and he has touched my life with his brilliant characterizations. Thank you for an honest, in-depth look at a very special man. I've been seeing for years, especially when I was a kid, Harrison Ford was my favorite actor. Because he was in so many movies that I loved. We know this is 1980, so at this point, we only knew him from Star Wars, maybe American Graffiti. But we know within the next couple of years, he would explode in the world of science fiction and action-adventure movies. I always liked him, too. Yeah, he was, I mean, because in Star Wars, he was just, he was the most fun character, really. And I, I had a Harrison Ford poster in my room. We would have been best friends as kids. You know that? <laughs> Keith Hoffman of New Carlisle, Ohio, writes, Who is the other? And he's referring to Yoda's comment that there is another person that was strong in the Force. He says, I suggest Princess Leia. She is young enough for the training. She withstood Dark Vader's tortures. She is dedicated to the cause. Princess Leia, not Lando, heard Luke's cries for help. Han Solo is not in shape to be going anywhere for a while, and he is too old. I wouldn't be surprised if in the third film, Leia, instead of Luke, destroys the Emperor. Of course, it will be the year 2000 before we find out. An exaggeration there. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I, um, of course I was hoping it would be Han Solo. But I do remember people saying, like, well, it could be Leia, and, um, 
And then someone said it would be a disappointment because she already has a lot of power as a, as a princess and a senator. But, but anyway, so we know how it turned out. Greg Lamberson of Fredonia, New York writes, Thank you so much for issue 37 of Starlog. It was the first issue that I've really been satisfied with since Starlog went monthly. I felt that, with the exception of personal editorials in the Vision series, Starlog copped out by abandoning those careful examinations of sci-fi films and TV shows and books in favor of infinite articles on some very overrated films. You may think Moonraker was a good film, but the Bond enthusiasts tend to agree that it was the worst Bond ever, including the satire Casino Royale. Interviews with Toothy Kendalls. Most enjoyable, however, was the article by Sam Marioni. It was great. The illustrations were hysterical. The artist has got really great talent. Uh, this goes back to what Starlog has said some years ago. They're going to report on everything and let the reader decide what was good and what was not. Of course they're going to have an article about Moonraker because Moonraker was a hot film at the time. And some people liked it, too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it, it it all depends on what you're looking looking for out of a movie, what your interests are. And I was glad that Moonraker got a cover article, because previous to that, Starlog was not reporting on James Bond movies to the point where they would have a, a small news snippet, but going forward, James Bond would enter the fold of having major coverage. And I have to say this guy is right. He said, just a few issues ago is when Starlog started getting really, really good. I think some of the earlier Starlog magazines had some dry articles some of the writers were reporting on things that were more retro, that is like an overabundance. I like one retro article, two retro articles. I don't want half the magazine to be retro articles. So now they're reporting on things that are current of the time, and I do like that a lot. This was the time when Starlog was really finding their audience, and because we know what we wanted to read about was, was current stuff. Exactly. And I was thinking when I was younger and I would read Starlog, the retro articles helped me to appreciate things of yesteryear, and so I needed that to fill in because we didn't have a VCR. The only thing we knew about of older TV shows that weren't being reruns were, in my case, reading Famous Monsters of Filmland. So I think at this point, Starlog Magazine was finding its ground, its balance on coverage of various subject matters. Log Entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Auctions speak louder than words. The good old days keep getting better. Invest in the past. With that slogan in mind, over 400 active bidders turned out to feast their eyes and sacrifice their wallets at the first great sci-fi fantasy and horror movie memorabilia auction. So in Hollywood, they put on an auction for a whole bunch of movie memorabilia items, things that were actually in movies, including items from Lost in Space, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, King Kong, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Star Trek, and Diamonds Are Forever. Opening speech was given by Forrest J. Ackerman of Famous Monsters of Filmland fame. That's right. 
There was a poster, Superman and the Mole Man, that got sold for $325. Walt Disney's Comics and Stories, number one, went for $325. Irwin Allen's Jupiter 2 from Lost in Space went unsold. The minimum bid was $500, and no one bid on it. But the flying sub from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea went for $1,375. The bathos sub from James Bond's Diamonds Are Forever brought in $4,000. But the person who bid on it did not pay, so it was left unclaimed. See, I don't think they allow things like that anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I don't know. When, when someone wins a bid, you know, they still... They don't collect the money until the auction's over, so it seems like it could still happen. But yeah, there's some expensive stuff there. Can't believe nobody uh, wanted that Jupiter too. A Superman shirt and cape, slightly moth-eaten, went to a Los Angeles insurance salesman who picked them up for investment purposes for $18,000. So it doesn't say which Superman. I don't know if it's the Kirk Allen Superman, the George Reeves Superman. Doesn't say. But we know... Now more than ever, movie auctions are big money. Special TV Preview With changes coming fast and heavy, this fall we'll see a new Buck Rogers in the 25th century. So we're talking about the second season of Buck Rogers. Big changes. That is an understatement. We know they made big changes. It was almost a different show. The whole feel of the show was different. Not just the costumes, not just adding and subtracting characters from the show, but even the dialogue and how Buck portrayed himself and Wilma portrayed herself. Yeah, they, you know, the way I felt about it was they took away everything that was good about the first season. Um, no more of the flashy costumes, no more of the snappy remarks from Buck. You, you could almost say it was more grounded, even though they left Earth and were on a spaceship. But it, it was, um, you could say it was more mature, it was more serious. Aaron Gray comments saying, We are going to see a totally new buck, and I'm delighted. I'm tired of just shoot 'em ups I don't want that. I've never thought of science fiction as hardware or just action, and I've been very disappointed when that's all I've had to deal with. I don't know. I didn't view first season of Buck Rogers as just a shoot 'em up show. Yeah, I, I didn't view it like that, but but since she mentioned it, I mean, yeah, there, it, it had that in it. It had the action. And and the thing is, you know, like this article comes out before people actually uh, saw it. So, so like they're going to say, oh, these changes are good, you know, but then it turns out, you know, when they look back at it, they're, you know, because all the fans ask, why did they change it? And, and it wasn't as good, you know. In the last season, the relationship between Buck and Wilma was never defined. Gray hopes it will become a relationship similar to the one shared by Matt Dillon and Amanda in Gunsmoke. She explains, You never knew whether they were lovers or whatever. But there was such a closeness and spunkiness in the way they talked with each other, teased and cared for each other as equals. I don't care whether I'm a central figure in the series at all the time or out in front, but I do want to be the person Buck comes home to and talks to when the day is over or if he has a problem. Someone he could talk to who listens, who he feels comfortable with. What do you think about Aaron Gray's comments in that area? I always felt like they were friends. And um, 
you know, you know, you didn't really see the like what you call sexual tension, like there is on on a lot of other TV shows with a male and female character. I mean, in this case, because because there were always other female guest stars, and it always seemed like Buck and Wilma just worked together, and they worked very well together. They really were great friends and would risk their lives for each other. But I never really saw that sexual tension there. Agreed. She says that. The audience never knew where I stood and how I felt. In the movie, there was a scene which explains Wilma's entire background that Glenn Larson edited out for TV because it didn't fit with the rhythm of the show. Every five minutes, there was a joke or an action scene. And I have to say, that's exactly how it was. First season was just like that. Yeah, there wasn't as much about her feelings. That's true. Or or anybody's feelings, really. It was... Yeah, it wasn't as much focus on character development. But it was, in comparison to Alistair Galactica, there was a lot of comedy. Yes, there was. Where she says, hope for the next season. She says, I can hardly wait. We have a chance to expand new concepts, new ideas. We can deal with concepts of utopia, or we can go where we can grow. You know, since she mentioned... um... Matt Dillon on Gunsmoke, that is, I remember, that's the way the second season was advertised, like, they would, I mean, it's because it had the same producer as Gunsmoke, and and I know they were trying to, they were trying to draw parallels, even though there wasn't one, but it was advertised, like, that that Buck Rogers is like um, Matt Dillon defending his territory, something, they said something like that in a commercial, and I, I just thought that was so weird that they did that, because this wasn't a Western, like, from, what, 10, 20 years ago. And the funny thing is, I wouldn't know the 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 connection. Right. I never watched us, Gunsmoke yeah. when I was a little kid. Yeah, we wouldn't have known that. I mean, yeah, we did know what that was. So, yeah, it's very strange that they did that. She does give the readers a hint, not even a hint. She comes out and said, there's going to be a new character that's part of the show. She said, now, Buck is apparently the greatest pilot of the 25th century, but it's never explained why, and he's going to meet his match. With this high-level evolution of a character named Hawk, he has incredible eyesight. And he doesn't win in a dogfight versus Buck, and this is what makes him very human. We're going to care about Hawk as well as about Buck, and we're going to understand why he acts the way he acts. And I have to say, that first episode of the second season, which introduces Hawk... I think is fantastic. Hawk was a good character. He was really the best thing that came out of the second season. Yeah, yeah, probably the only thing I liked about it. I mean, yeah, at least they added that character that was a good character. And I don't remember him having really any special abilities. They didn't really emphasize it. And I like that they address the issue that TV is a different format than movies. Because right now in 1980, by this point, Star Trek The Motion Picture had just come out less than a year before Empire Strikes Back came out a few months earlier, and it said that television simply cannot compete with Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, 2001, or the Star Trek feature. There's not enough time or money to do that. Visual effects are very expensive and time-consuming, and these shows relied on that to a large extent. I don't think that that's what makes a television series. Now, I don't want to do away with the special effects. They're fun, but there has to be more to that. Exactly. That's one of the things, the benefits of a long-running TV show is you can build character development over numerous episodes. And so they're just different mediums. 
You know, you know, it is right, and the special effects they they had them, but but it wasn't big budget like like for a movie, and the character development. I think they they did try to do more things in the second season of Buck Rogers. I know they had the one where where um, Buck was remembering something that happened in his past, and they put him on trial for something back in the twentieth century. So that what that was interesting. They did do they did do a few things like that. So they they had the character development. They did try to do that more. I think sometimes they failed because it just kind of it wasn't um, as interesting. It would it was it was kind of boring sometimes. But I can see where they did try. But when I was a kid, if the show didn't have special effects to the level that movies did, that did bother me. I mean, we grew up watching fifties and sixties television shows on reruns. Kind of campy special effects was the norm for television. I cared more about the stories than anything else. Exactly. You want you want to have good stories. Um, even for kids, you know, you, there are certain things that you look at that you can you can tell when it when it flows well. Hey everybody. My name is Mark McCrae and I am your special correspondent guest starring on Star Pod Log podcast. And today I'm going to talk about the 1980-81 Saturday morning television season that was featured originally in Starlog magazine. The article was written by a gentleman named C.M. Stevenson. And what is really cool about the article, he gives an overall view of Saturday morning programming. What shows are new, what shows are returning, what shows are not returning. And if I had known that this magazine had existed back in the day, well, actually, I did know it existed, but I didn't necessarily think that it had this type of information in it, like Saturday Morning TV, which is something that, you know, I absolutely love. In fact, I wrote a book about it, The Best Saturdays of Our Lives. Uh, go to my website. Well, we'll talk about that later. Anyway, the article is pretty cool. They talk about CBS's schedule first, of course, because CBS always had really great Saturday morning programming in the 1980s. And they talk about the Mighty Mouse Heckle and Jekyll show, uh, which is a new version of Mighty Mouse and Heckle and Jekyll. This program was originally done by the Terry Toon Studios. And Terry Toon Studios were very influential in starting Saturday morning programming back in the 1950s, because CBS actually bought the Terry Toon Library specifically to air on Saturday mornings to fill a, a space that uh, was there on Saturday morning TV. So it's pretty cool. Filmation Productions are the producers of this new program. And um, because we are talking about the past, I can tell you that this series uh, tracked really well ratings-wise. And then uh, they also talk about the new Tom and Jerry show, also from Filmation. Uh, Tom and Jerry was originally theatricals that won seven Academy Awards, and it was created by William Hanna and Joseph Barbera back in the day. And what's really cool about the Tom and Jerry comedy show is that it really returns the characters back to its roots, where they chase each other, and there's a constant back and forth, and battles... There was an earlier version of Tom and Jerry that came out in the 1970s where Tom and Jerry were friends and didn't particularly, um, there wasn't a lot going on. They were friends and so there was no conflict and they gave uh, Jerry a bow tie and everybody was like, huh? Anyway, 
Uh, so that was back. Uh, that did pretty decent ratings as well. And of course, at 9 o'clock, you had the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner Hour, which, you know, always does well. It's Looney Tunes. It have been on the schedule, on CBS's schedule, since 1968 and pulling in great business. But the big show on Saturday morning, on CBS Saturday morning, was a show called Drag Pack, which features characters as teenage descendants of Dracula, Frankenstein, and the werewolf. And uh, this show had a really great character design. It was also from Hanna-Barbera. And um, this was the show to watch uh, during the 1980 uh, schedule. The Saturday morning CBS finishes off with more Fat Albert and followed by the Long Ranger, the Lone Ranger, who will team up with Tarzan for the Lone Ranger Tarzan Adventure Hour. And then Jason the Star Command, which premiered a season earlier, wasn't renewed by CBS, but uh, went on to continue his adventures in syndication on Sundays at 8 a.m. ABC, also a pretty good, highly rated network, rolls out the red carpet with something that they call the Comedy Blockbuster Segment. And this would air from 7A to 9A a.m., featuring the Richie Rich Scooby-Doo show. Now, when the office at 7 to 9, that was uh, uh, L.A. Sp- uh, specific time. Uh, on the East Coast, that series probably aired closer to 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. Uh, that's when Saturday morning started on the East Coast. But uh, So this was Richie Rich's big debut, and it was created by Hanna-Barbera. And this show delivered the goods. You thought you were actually seeing a comic book in animation. It was a really a wonderful show that lasted many seasons on the network. And as a fan of Richie Rich, it was really good to see a faithful adaptation. Um, also premiering was the Fonz and the Happy Days gang, when Fonzie tries to help um, an alien fix a spacecraft, they all get flung back into the past, and the series re- revol- re- revolves around Fonz and his new alien friend, as well as Richie Cunningham and company, trying to find their way back to their present, uh, which was in Milwaukee, um, somewhere in the late fifties. Uh, but and so. But the, the show was really great also, did pretty great ratings as well, because it had Fonzie and Richie Cunningham having all type of cool adventures in the past. And then the big show for 1980 uh, on ABC was Thundaughter Barbarian, uh, which did huge, huge ratings. The following year, ABC ordered more episodes. And even after the show went into repeats and got traded over to NBC many years later, the series did really great ratings. Joe Ruby and Ken Spears, who created the show, stated that they kept trying to order new episodes, but no one, none of the networks wanted it because the show did really great ratings in repeats. You know, I, when I look at a series like Thundar, I always think that it was the Right show on the wrong platform. Thundar, in my opinion, probably should have been syndicated, uh, running Monday through Friday, and they would have generated, like, more than 100 episodes because the show was really that good. And unfortunately, it suffered a low episode count thanks to, you know, limited animation budgets on Saturday morning, unfortunately. The Super Friends also came back on ABC, The Plastic Man series also got renewed and introduced Baby Plaz. And Baby Plaz has all the stretchabilities of his dad. 
And uh, also on ABC, you had the uh, Return of the Weekend special, which featured movies and special events. Over to NBC, we have the Godzilla Dynamut Hour, which is was a holdover from the previous season. You also had the Flintstone Comedy Show, which was a remake of an earlier Flintstone comedy show from the 1972-73 season that ran on CBS. But this comedy show is a little different. It features the return of Captain Caveman, which now puts Captain Caveman in the Flintstones continuity, which I thought was such a really brilliant idea. I thought it was awesome. So just a little history. It was the Pebbles and Bam Bam show in 1971. The following year became the Flintstones Comedy Hour, which featured new adventures of Pebbles and Bam Bam, as well as Fred and Barney and company. Then the third year, uh, during the 1973 season, you had the Flintstones Comedy Show, which was an abbreviated version of those earlier shows. And so I thought it was cool that Hanna-Barbera decided to bring back the Flintstones Comedy Show in a new format and also add... Captain Caveman, who had his premiere earlier in the 70s on ABC, but in this particular Captain Caveman show, Captain Caveman is part of the Flintstones continuity. And whoever came up with that idea, I hope they got a promotion, because it made perfectly good sense for Captain Caveman to be part of the Flintstones continuity. And they set up a secret identity for him that was very similar to Superman. Uh, he works for the Daily Granite, disguised as Chester, a mild-mannered copy boy. And with the help of woman Flintstone and Betty Rubble, uh, who are now reporters, they try to help Captain Caveman stop the craziest villains. Um, I thought the whole concept of Wilma and Betty finally getting out of the home and working in the same office that that <laughs> Captain Caveman was working in, in his civilian identity as Chester. Again, brilliant idea. Also featured was the return of Space Ghosts and the Herculoids in a new series called Space Stars, which was billing itself, according to the author of this article, um, the animated Star Wars. The series was composed of six segments, some suspenseful, some humorous. Of course, Space Ghost returning with his teenage companions, Jan and Jace. Astro from the Jetsons also was part of the show. He was assisting a guy named Space Ace, an outer space policeman. And Space Ace looked like an animated version of Burt Reynolds. It was so funny. I thought it was pretty cool. You know, Herculoids, who I mentioned, Herculoids was pretty much Tarzan, Jane, and Sun in space having control of their animals and people constantly coming to their planet and trying to always start fights with the Herculoids, which I think is crazy because <laughs> you're going to lose. You also had the return of the Daffy Duck show, which uh, featured many of the later Daffy Duck cartoons that were produced in the 1960s. And that finished up NBC's schedule. But before I go, I, I would be remiss if I did not mention the author also talked about Project Peacock. And as a television fan of Saturday Morning and cartoons and animation, one of the things I love about doing research and finding out things and having my friends have me guest host their awesome podcast is the fact that I get to learn things as well. So I had to do a little more digging up about uh, Project Peacock, but it was like this really cool, high-profile 
big budgeted uh, specials program that was implemented uh, by a guy named Edgar J. Skerrick, and uh, he was the executive in charge of productions and shows included variety, narrative stories, drama, comedy, musical. One of the series, the Alice in Wonderland a series, won an Emmy Award, which I think is really cool. And other projects included The Electric Grandmother, based on Ray Bradbury's I Sing the Body Electric. Uh, there was also The Big Stuff Dog by Charles M. Schultz, you know, creator of The Peanuts. And that was a story of a stuffed Snoopy an adventure featuring Abe Vagoda, who was an actor who played Fish on Barney Miller, Noah Barry Jr., who played the dad on The Rockford Files, and Gordon Jump, who played the uh, president off of, of the radio station from WKRP in Cincinnati. And uh, this, this show kind of got by me, and uh, it looks like it was pretty awesome. It also featured a special called Donahue and Kids, where talk show host Phil Donahue talked with kids who are confronted uh, with uh, life-threatening illnesses in an hour-long program, which also won an Emmy for Outstanding Children's Program, which I think is really cool. So that was it. That was the 1980 ABC, CBS, NBC schedule. Fox Kids were, were not around. We have to wait until around 1992 for that uh, uh, network and cartoons to make a, a debut. But uh, it was really cool and awesome to be able to talk about the 1980 Saturday morning schedule. Again, my name is Mark McRae. I am an author of The Best Saturdays of Our Lives, a book that chronicles how Saturday morning became a business as well as the proving ground for what will become later the 24-hour kids network you can order a copy of my book at tbsool which are the initials of the best saturdays of our lives.com uh, you will get a signed book and a magnet as well as a sticker also i have a podcast called the best saturdays of our lives podcast that features uh, my co-host and producer dan clink uh, and we talk about everything, some things that are in my book and some things that are not in my book, like uh, what was going on behind the scenes between networks and studios and some of the political uh, happenings of how a show got created. Or what's your favorite theme song? Or what's your favorite theme song that nobody knows about? We pull back the curtain and talk about all those things. Special TV preview, Mork and Mindy. Mork returns to Orkin Basics for the new season. Were you a Mork and Mindy fan growing up? Oh, I was. I think every kid was. Uh, that, that show was just so wacky. I remember my brother getting the Mork action figure. It came in a little egg, and he bought the Mork doll. He pulled the string on his backpack, and he said, Nanu, Nanu, Shazbot. I remember that. That was so cool. <laughs> And, and, and even came pa- upside down in the package. Oh, yeah. On yeah. purpose. <laughs> That's the way he would sleep, upside down or sit. Yeah. Yeah, he he was so weird. Um, And they had all of those neat sayings, like the Nanu Nanu from that show, and don't be a nimnal, and a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> well, by this point, the ratings were dropping a bit, so the producer said, let's change the format to go back to its first season, Innocence. 
Um, I don't remember the show making drastic changes one way or another. Do you? Um, well, not until Mork and Mindy got married. That was you know, a big then, change. Yeah. Of course, that's always a jump the shark move for a TV show. But, but I did, one time when I went back and, and looked it up, I saw that the, like the ratings for that show actually went down every season. So the first season was the most successful. And I guess you can see it because later on, Mork started acting, well, I mean, it's natural that he would be, he would act more like an earthling as, as it, as he gets more acclimated to earth. But it kind of, the, you know, you can see the ratings go down too as he started acting more human. What do you think the reason for that is? Do you think that the initial viewing of, of Robin Williams and his antics was exciting, but then after a while, do you think many viewers, it was just too much? Or why would it be a steady decline? It, you know, it could be because, because Robin Williams was so brilliant. And the thing is, I mean, he was great at first, but you know, I think, I think you can, you can really only take so much of that silliness for one thing. So, <laughs> yeah. so he did have to tone it down later. And, and plus, I remember like, like after it became a hit and you know, Buck Rogers is on and you know, Buck Rogers and Mork and Mindy happened to be like, they put them on the same night for a while at the same time. And that drove you crazy. It did. This was before VCRs, you know, so I had to choose which one to watch. How much of a Mork fan were you? I was a huge fan. I had the um the Mork Rainbow Suspenders. <laughs> <laughs> and I I had a Mork and Mindy board game too. And which was pretty neat. And my brother my older brother could do a dead on impersonation of Mork. He did it all the time. He his where he worked, his coworkers called him Mork. <laughs> <laughs> also new this season is a character called Widow Comstock, played by beautiful blonde actress Chrissy Wilzak. This character is an old high school friend of Mindy's who had a whirlwind four-month marriage. Her wealthy husband catered to her every whim, but unfortunately died a premature death. I I think that, that and I really think that's the, the core of what was going on with the character of Mork and Robin Williams in general. Because he ad-libbed so much, even they said on set it was hard to keep up with him. Pan Dauber had a problem reading her lines because she couldn't bounce off of him. Yeah, and... And, and the audience, I just remember at times just sitting there, just saying, man, this show is so weird. I like it. I think it's funny, but it's just so bizarre. I think that audiences had to keep up with him, and we were not ready for that. Yeah, because it was just so spontaneous. And I know Pam Dauber could... um Sometimes she would just start laughing, too. Yeah. <laughs> because, he, you know, she wasn't expecting whatever he would say. It's funny because they try to keep somewhat of a sensible, normal, if you would say, sitcom atmosphere. But some of the plot lines were just so radically weird. And and, and the involvement in others in the show was so weird, I could see that it only ran a short period of time. I could see why that happened. Yeah, you can only go so far with it. They, They were outlandish sometimes. Oh, and remember the character... Exodore, the crazy friend of Mork's. And the thing is, this guy was, was crazier than Mork. <laughs> it's interesting that they, that they added him, like, like, isn't Robin Williams enough? But I guess it was just someone else for him to bounce off of. Hello. This is The British Report. Hello. My name is Anthony Rooney. 
but you can call me Roo. It's always interesting to see how the rest of the world views you. For instance, as an Englishman, whenever I go to Disney World in America, I can never resist visiting the United Kingdom Pavilion at Epcot, which is very much an American's view of Britain. At first glance, it sort of looks right, but it's also a bit off somehow. Step inside the iconic red telephone box there, and it's far cleaner and a lot less smelly than the real ones ever were. As a science fiction fan, it was similarly interesting back in 1980 to see how Starlog magazine covered British sci-fi. In issue 39, they gave it a whole two pages. Well, one and a half, really. There was also an ad for back issues of Cinemagic magazine. Now, back then, I knew that there was an awareness of Doctor Who in the States, at least among fans of the genre. Also, Douglas Adams' novelisation of his Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy radio series had hit the bestseller lists over there too. But did you? And I'm presuming here that the main audience for this podcast is American, because Starlog is an American magazine after all. Did you know anything at all about Blake 7 back then? Or Sapphire and Steel? Not that there's any reason why you should have done. Let's turn this around. If you'd popped over to England back in 1980 and asked me about Dark Shadows, I wouldn't have known what you were talking about. Perhaps, after some head-scratching, I might have remembered a picture of some guy called Barnabas that I saw in an imported copy of that wonderful tome, Fantastic Television. But beyond that, nothing. At that time, I had no real idea about Dark Shadows or its cultural significance, that millions of American kids would run home from school to watch that show every day. In fact, I didn't get to grips with Dark Shadows until a few years ago, when I watched the entire series of a billion episodes or whatever it is, from start to finish. And while all of my friends were raving about Game of Thrones, I was falling head over heels in love with the spooky world of Collingwood. But that's another story, or even another podcast. Anyway, what we're looking at in issue 39 of Starlog are basically a bunch of press releases for various UK sci-fi shows. We start with Doctor Who and the then upcoming 18th series, or season 18 as you would say. Although actually, we've gone over to saying season ourselves over here now. The article points out that this was a time of change for Doctor Who, with a new producer, John Nathan Turner, and a new companion, Adric, played by Matthew Waterhouse. The rumours that the Doctor's robot dog, K9, would be leaving the series were true. Affirmative. Though he did get a shot at his own series with a pilot called K9 and Company, a rather bizarre tale of witchcraft and market gardening, not to mention the worst theme tune for anything, ever. Affirmative. Of course, we'd also lose a companion that year the second incarnation of the Time Lady Romana, as played by Lala Ward. The biggest change of all, though, was to come at the end of the season, when Tom Baker departed the role to be replaced by Peter Davison. You may be a Doctor, but I'm the Doctor. As you may know, Baker and Ward married, but sadly it didn't last long, and there were no time tots. It's the end. But the moment has been prepared for. How well known is Blake 7 in America? 
I'm really not sure. This is where the conversation could do with being a two-way street. For anyone not familiar with the series, fans would tell you that Blake 7 is the Dirty Dozen in space. Hmm, maybe. Personally, I think a better description would be Robin Hood in space, though nothing like a very old cartoon some of you might remember called Rocket Robin Hood. Sorry. Blake was Robin and even tended to dress in green. There was a burly fellow called Gan who was basically Little John and the main villain was called Servalang, think Sheriff of Nottingham, with her own Guy of Gisborne, here called Space Commander Travis. Now if you're thinking, well that sounds a bit lame, I would point out that despite its origins, Blake 7 developed into its own identity and was actually quite bleak and very gritty. Okay, sometimes on occasion it was a bit camp too. However, the powerful ending to the series remains shocking to this day, and if you've never experienced Blake 7, then I'd urge you to seek it out. Next up is Sapphire and Steel. Now, I adore Sapphire and Steel. It's one of my favourite series of all time. Yet I genuinely struggle to find a way of explaining it to someone who's never seen the show. It can't be explained to him. It can, in a way, but not by you, perhaps. Okay, let's start with the basics. You'll probably know David McCallum, who, to my generation, will always be Ilya Koryakin from The Man From Uncle. Well, he played Steel. Perhaps when you finish telling the boy about the nicer aspects of our job, you'd tell him about the dangers. He knows about them. Sapphire was played by Joanna Lumley, who some of you may remember as Purdy from the New Avengers. No, not the Marvel superheroes, the British Avengers, with John Steed. Where did you learn that? The Royal Marine? Royal Ballet. They threw me out. Sapphire and Steel was one of those series where the audience isn't given all of the information and has to draw their own conclusions. Well? I can't make any sense of it. The series deals with time, but it's not really about time travel. Putting it simply, sometimes there are cracks in time, and sometimes things get in through those cracks. This is when Sapphire and Steel are assigned. We don't know who or what assigns them. They just turn up. I don't know you. Only the policeman at the point. The policeman at the point isn't coming. I've contacted him and told him that everything now here is under control. But it isn't. I know. That's why we're here and not him. It's their job to assess and resolve the problem, whatever that problem may be, and use whatever means it takes to do so, which isn't always a good thing for the innocent bystanders involved. Sapphire and Steel may look human, but it soon becomes clear that they aren't. There are tantalising hints about who, or rather what, they are, but there are never any clear-cut explanations. And that's a good thing, because it gives the heroes a certain mystique that is part of the series' appeal. Sapphire and Steel leans more towards spooky than sci-fi, the best example being the second story in the series about an abandoned railway station haunted by the ghost of a soldier from the First World War. 
Despite its low production values, the story conjures some genuinely shocking and frightening imagery. Because nothing is really explained about the heroes, you can go straight to that story and enjoy it in isolation. In fact, I usually watch it around Halloween. I could certainly see Sapphire and Steel appealing to Dark Shadows fans. Come on. It's here. Where? Yeah. Don't play games with it. It's inside my head. It's inside my brain. But I can't see you because it has my eyes. It's watching you and listening to you through my eyes. So please don't try to trick it. You could take my eyes. Back to Starlog, and there's talk of a series based on 1950s comic book hero, Dan Dare, pilot of the future. While the character is a bit before my time, I grew up knowing about Dan Dare, and I'm sorry that this proposed television series never materialised. There was a recent attempt to adapt it as an audio series, but good though it was, I don't think it quite caught the spirit of the original. Maybe the concept of square-jawed British chaps in outer space is a bit too old-fashioned. Pity. Next, the article offers some speculation about a movie version of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy to be directed by Terry Jones of Monty Python fame. And again, I'm sorry this one didn't happen either. I'm sure it would have been so much better than the train wreck of a movie adaptation we got in 2005. Does an ape man walk the uncharted forests of America's northwest? I don't know. Don't ask me. Now... Again, I don't know if you got Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World over in the States. As the article points out, it's a similar concept to your own In Search Of series that Leonard Nimoy used to host. So you'd get episodes asking whether the Loch Ness Monster exists, or whether flying saucers are real, to which the answer was invariably no. At the end of each episode, we'd cut back to old Arthur C., sunning himself in his beautiful Sri Lankan home for his trademark comment, Well, personally, I don't believe it. Indeed, the biggest mystery of all was why he was lending his name to the series at all. I suspect the answer involved a big fat check, but we can't be sure. Last but not least, there's a quick mention of a new television comedy from the unlikely person of Nigel Neal who gave us the wonderful Professor Quatermass. Now there's a character who really needs to make a comeback. But anyway, the series, called Kinvig after the lead character, was an odd, but I thought likeable comedy. It was about a much put-upon, down-at-heel electrical repairman, who may, or may not, have been contacted by extraterrestrials. Each week, Des Kinvig would get involved in a new adventure that he had most likely dreamt up, based on stories and imagery from old pulp sci-fi magazines, and the crazy UFO conspiracy theories told to him by his equally down-at-heel best friend, Jim. Nigel Neal very much conflated sci-fi fans with UFO enthusiasts, but he's not the only one guilty of that. Certainly over my many years of being a science fiction fan, I've had people assume that I must also believe in flying saucers. I don't. I enjoy stories about UFOs. 
in much the way that I enjoy stories about ghosts. But that's all they are, stories. I'd be more than happy to be proved wrong, but I really don't think this planet has ever been visited by aliens. I may love science fiction, but I've a very healthy respect for science fact. Wait a minute, what's that? Someone that makes me very angry all the time, Lou Melagrana with us, and uh, also Max Overnighter. Uh, if anyone isn't aware, my uh, secret alias that I turn into when I'm not angry is Rich Hurley, but uh, usually I'm just Dr. Durant. I think today we're talking about The Incredible Hulk, the uh, 1970s television series with Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno. I awesome. love Lou Ferrigno. And his name's Lou. That just makes it all the better. <laughs> well, I, like I love the Incredible Bixby. Hulk. <laughs> and I mean, this is from that time period where there, there was, you know, nowadays, you know, Marvel fans just have their, their pick of whatever they want for, uh, you know, Marvel heroes, you know, the movies and the TV series and stuff like that. But back then, you know, there was very little. There was a Spider-Man TV series with Nicholas Hammond, which was okay. Um, and then this came along. This was really the first, I think, really full-fledged um, live-action superhero series for, for Marvel that, that was a big success. It was good. It was good. It was very, very good. It was really yeah, good. Before that, I mean, Marvel is, uh, you know, we all knew, you know, the, the cartoons, you know, Spider-Man and Aquaman and Fantastic Four, or Spider-Man and Aquaman X DC, but, uh, you know, Spider-Man, the Fantastic Four, Iron Man, uh, all of that stuff from the cartoons, but to, to, to bring them out into a live action. And at the time, you know, of course, how, how in the world are you going to do, you know, the transformation, you know, to this monster, you know, from the mild mannered, you know, Bruce Banner to this, this beast character. And, and, you know, keeping in mind that in the, you know, late seventies, even they didn't have the, all the, you know, CG stuff that they could do right. now. Uh, special effects were, were done totally different. Now, um, I think it came across, you know, when you look at it now, I mean, sure, you could probably be real critical and say, well, then, you know, hey, that's kind of, you know, cheap or whatever. But at the time, um, you know, when you're watching it and for the target audience, you know, being, being kids, you know, our younger people uh, who are the comic book fans, uh, I think that it came across extremely well. And it was very, you know, very interesting and didn't have the same um, campy feel that, uh, you know, that the Batman oh, yeah. uh, program or the Wonder Woman, sure. um, it had more of an, uh, an action 
And it was something I think that, you know, as now, cause you know, as, uh, as an older person, as an adult or, uh, you know, younger, you know, our older, older teen, you know, younger twenties, you know, you could watch it and, and get a lot of enjoyment out of it, you know, especially if you've grown up with, you know, the comic books. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I, I loved the incredible Hulk as a kid and, uh, I mean, the comic books, the TV show, everything. And it, it was really special to me because, you know, when, when I was younger, my parents got divorced when I was you know, probably around six or seven years old. And, um, you know, my father would take me on the weekends and he had like this little apartment and he'd pick me up every Friday afternoon after school. And the Hulk was on on Friday nights. And I remember sitting there with my dad every Friday. So I, I looked forward to Friday to see my dad. And we would sit there in the apartment and we would watch the Hulk and, you know, and then like when he would take me home at the end of the weekend, I, I, I felt like the lonely man theme was playing in my head because I was so sad. And I thought my dad was like living alone in this sad little apartment, you know, little did I know he had like a girlfriend on the side and everything like that. So it was, you know, it wasn't, but to, but to Sorry, me, it was, my heart was broken for my dad. I, I thought he was like Bill Bixby. Like he's like, Oh, he's all alone. He has to live in this sad apartment. And, and I miss him so much. And it was like, you know, so the Hulk's are a very special show for me, just, just for those memories alone. But of right. course, growing up, you know, I love the Hulk. And I, I think you're right, Max, what they did that was beautiful here is, the effects still hold up, but they, they gave it two things. They only let him turn into the Hulk twice per episode. So you're not getting an overload of the Hulk, you know, and you have Bill Bixby as the lead who really plays the pathos and the, uh, the tragedy of, of the character of, they call him David Banner in the TV series. Cause they thought Bruce was, uh, I don't know. They, they didn't think it was manly enough of a name back in the seventies, I guess to call him Bruce Banner. <laughs> I think the show, I love the show. I always thought it was really good. I mean, they, as far as, as far as like the special effects, I mean, they were what they were for the time. They weren't horrible because there were movies that were released shows after that whole came out that were bad. I don't know. Did you guys ever see like the really early fantastic four movie or something? It was terrible. It was oh, like, the, the Roger Corman one that they horrible. did where yeah, Mr. Fantastic is just like his just hands an arm, on a arm and a on a stick. Yeah, it was terrible. <laughs> but then you watch this, it's really cool. Like they'd showed him and, you know, then he would, he'd give that, he'd get that intense look. Please don't make me angry. And then you get that intense look and they zoom in on his face and the eyes start to turn green or they turn yeah. green. And the next thing you know, he's coming out. And, you know, even the fact, I think that they, they did stuff right. Like they did it and a lot of it, the slow motion stuff, which just makes it look like it's, you know, explosive, even though it was probably styrofoam and stuff, you know, that kind of, not to say Lou Ferrigno probably could knocked over a few walls. It was not exactly. Right. Well, that's the thing is like, they, they get, it almost gave it that comic book feel too. When it's in slow motion, it's like you're watching panels move or something like that. Yeah. And you're, you're, you can, you know, you, you can spend time with the action, but yeah. And the Hulk of course just appeals. I mean, obviously it appe- appealed to adults too, but uh, you know, it appeals to kids for so many reasons. Cause you know, when you're growing up as a kid, you've got that these emotions that you can't sort of deal with, and people just don't understand you. Just like the Hulk, you know, like you've got a lot of anger and rage. That's and that's, that's like hard that. to do. Like you take a superhero, you make it so that kids and adults, and you know, it's one thing you go see a Marvel movie today, right. kids and adults can go see it, but they make that show where like kids and adults could get it, and it you know had a real story, which was good. It wasn't. I mean, I don't, I didn't think it was cheesy. I actually thought it was good. I mean, you know, other than the fact that it was a, 
superhero in the in, in the movie in the show, it was still like a good TV series, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, it really was. I mean, they had all the right actors for it, that's for sure. Yeah, and it was, you know, and, and the way that the way that it portrayed, I mean, it was it was an interesting story each week, and uh, you know, it it seemed, you know, very. I mean, even though it's obviously superhero fantasy kind of stuff, I mean, it it was done in a real believable, real human way. Right. Uh, and you know, the, the thing is, you know, they they you're you're right, you're absolutely right about the casting because, uh, you know, and and the thing with uh, Lou Ferrigno, I mean, he was not an un- unknown name at the time. I mean, people knew who Lou Ferrigno was. And, you know, from the bodybuilding and all of that stuff and, you know, to put him in, you know, in all the green and, the, you know, it's just, it was just uh, captivating, you know, because you could watch the show and, you know, it, it, it sort of had a, a very, very believable, not like, you know, not like, you know, a lot of like, a lot of the Marvel movies now, I mean, obviously total fantasy and, you know, they didn't have um, all of the, uh, the you know with all the computer graphics that they they do now they do yeah, the, thank god because that stuff messes stuff i mean the movies and stuff are good but i that stuff a lot of times i think it kind of messes it up i, I really well, yeah the, like, the cgi I is crazy like like you're you're right max because i think they say the thing about cgi looks real but feels fake and these yeah. effects look fake but feel real you know, right. <laughs> I, I think that i think that's a good way of putting it because a lot of times you know it's some of the some of the movies become uh, of today. They become so CG. Right. Like you don't need actors anymore. Like it, it, actors. It, it gets it's so, so much of a um, video overload. I think yeah. that it gets hard to follow. Um, you know, like uh, you remember when the like Transformers was big, right? You know, I mean, I tried watching Transformers as an adult, and I couldn't follow. You know, because of the CG. You know, and, you know, when they're like rolling around a fight and I couldn't tell who was whose parts or what, but, uh, you know, but when you look at the, you know, that the Hulk from, from back then, it was very obvious who, where the Hulk was and, you know, great. He was, you know, he was great. I mean, they did the right thing. He had the right, you know, mm -hmm. the right look to them. The green was the right color. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't too out of place. I mean, I, I don't know how long it took him to, him up in green that must have been fun to get off when he was done but well you know and the thing about it with it you know not only you know and that he's the this big you know thing that comes out you know out of anger but he had a very human um a a human presence you know like kind of like people talk about frankenstein was just a misunderstood and you know so it wasn't just a you know constant and total rage even while he was the character of the hulk you know um he was doing the right thing he wasn't just blinded rage you know i think that's why he appeals to kids just like uh frankenstein does you know because it's sort of like it's like they understand he's misunderstood he's not you know he's not there's no evil intent there or anything like that Right. Yeah. That's, that's, you know, he's, he's angry and now he's going to do this, that, and the other. And, you know, so it's not like he was just randomly smashing, you know, you know, granted, you know, the, the we all know the term Hulk smash, right? Uh, but it was, it was, um, focused rage, focused violence, focused, uh, whatever you, you know, and it came up, you know, 
So you didn't feel like, you know, he had to be afraid of him necessarily right. either, you know, that he was unpredictable. So it was, it, that, that's the thing. I, I mean, and I was, I was a little older. I mean, I was uh, probably what, 17 when it came, when the movie came out, yeah. you know, the show was on and uh, you know, it wasn't so kid oriented that you, I couldn't enjoy it at 17 years old. Right. Yeah, and that's the thing. I I showed it to my daughter when she was little. We used to watch like YouTube clip from it and stuff like that. And she used to uh, she loved the opening theme song, which is a more souped up version of the Lonely Man theme. And she would do that thing at the beginning. She'd the do that Unlonely like, Man. Yeah, she she'd sit in the car and she'd be like, but like I mean, it it everything about it was so great. I mean, and of course, anybody that talks about it remembers that theme they call the Lonely Man theme that even. You know that that oh. piano theme. It's kind of like the the. the I Marvel know. I was ten years old, and I would get sad. I'm like, why am well, I sad? Why is this man walking down the street by himself? Will nobody help him? But he always he always had good clothes. I always thought it was funny. Like he broke out of his clothes, and they always had a good outfit. I don't know if he kept extras, but did the Hulk even have one word in one episode? No, he would just no. roar, and it, and it wasn't even Luke, Luke yeah. Rigno didn't do his voice. Ted Cassidy, who played Lurch on the Adams Family, did the roar. Oh, if you, if you ever speak speak with Lufring or hear him speak, um, he yeah, I I think because of his his partial deaf or that he is like it's tough for him to do like a that deeper voice, uh, that, yeah, yeah, that thing, yeah. But I mean, to be to give Lufringo his due, I mean, he there are moments in the show he's not just smashing, you know, throwing styrofoam boulders around and and, and stuffed bears and stuff like that. There are scenes where. He has to show some emotion, and you know he has to, he can he has to do it without talking. You know it has to all be yeah. facial. It's, it's very silent. He, he yeah, he wasn't just some wild beast running around. He right, actually, right. Like, he was actually a character. I was looking at the the episode guide here. You know, going through some of the episodes, I remember one of my favorite episodes was "Never Give a Trucker an Even Break," and basically a good percentage of that episode is Stephen King. Uh, Stephen King's Steven Spielberg's um, duel. They take a lot of like the footage from the movie Duel, and it's basically Bill Bixby is being chased by this truck around the desert. I don't know if you guys have seen Duel, but it's that movie where you know uh, the the truck is chasing a guy around the desert, and that's basically the movie that got Spielberg <laughs> they did to be borrowed. Yeah, they they borrowed stuff. I mean, I guess they borrowed stuff back then, but I mean, even back then, like even if you borrowed something, your your available content was so much more contained right like now you go on the internet and you can watch a show that's in japan you know from your house back then like if it wasn't broadcasting in your area you wouldn't know what it was unless you're reading you know like a magazine like starlog or something to hear something about it i mean you know like i said i was younger i lived overseas and i remember we just get those magazines i think it was called dynamite you could get them from oh, the yeah. dynamite. Is that what it was? It dynamite. It was, it was dynamite, like, and then there was bananas. Bananas was yeah, for, exactly. A little bit older, you got bananas. Like, like right, and they'd have all those like. And here's a picture of the guy from Dukes of Hazard. I'm like, what the hell is Dukes of Hazard? You know, like we didn't have those shows over there. Everything was so far behind. But then you know, you, you come back here and you see all this stuff. But you know, it was like that's the only place you kind of found this stuff where your friends told you check out the new program. You know that kind of thing, and go home and make sure you. You know, turn your dial to channel such and such, and put some aluminum on the on the antenna so you can get the the picture. But yeah, it was it was so hard to like get content that wasn't in your area unless you were you know somebody else or being fed because you couldn't go look it up on the internet. There was none of that. Well, that's, 
and you didn't have, you know, didn't have cable TV and you didn't have, you know, you know, I mean, golden days. <laughs> certainly, I mean, you had, uh, you know, people had Betamax and, you know, things like that. But those players and all that was so expensive. I mean, I know when I was overseas, um, you know, in the military, I mean, we, you know, I was in Greece and there was no American television. I mean, we didn't have armed forces television or any of that. Wow. And, uh, you know, I mean, same thing when I was in Panama, we, you know, we, we didn't have that. And so, um, you know, we'd get stuff on ginormous, uh, those great big, what, 35 millimeter or eight millimeter oh, car reels. Yeah. Those big, those big ones that you see using like school, you know, or something, but you know, they'd send us stuff like the football games or whatever. And, uh, you know, well, runs red on the highway. You know, and, uh, but, you know, I mean, for me, when I was in, when I was in Greece, it was the eighties and we used to get, you know, stuff sent to us on, on VHS, sure. and, but that's how, that's the only way you could keep up. And, you know, so yeah, it's, it was, a, it was totally different and, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like now where you had in demand and all of that, you know, you, you got your butt in front of the television set or you didn't, you know, you missed the right. show. You never yeah, you see the, the episode show. again. You might never see it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was, so that was, you know, we were a lot more, you know, focused on what shows were on. I mean, you know, so TiVo yeah. or recording or no, watching or downloads, no, streaming it somewhere. There was none of that. And if you were over at Grandma's house, and you know, they would decided they wanted to watch golf or Lawrence oh, Welk, you know, don't even, don't even. Yeah, I, I remember that. I remember going to my grandparents and my grandfather and my cousins. They loved watching golf. My uncles, and I'm like, it's. No offense to anyone, but it was so boring. I'm like, yeah, so the Hulk song. I was like, all right, well, uh, we're going to watch some golf. And it's like, you're going to watch a bunch of grown men hit that little tiny ball That's in the, the field. And it's like just waiting for us. Like, let's watch some action. You know, yeah. I remember, who's the Hulk? I'm like, what? You know, that kind yeah. of stuff. There's, yeah. something, there's something very zen about watching older TV, too, like just the way – that the episodes are structured. That's very different about 100%. how TV episodes are now. Like, the acts are very, you know, here's the first act where we're setting up the story. Now he's going to turn into the Hulk, you know, at the right. midway point. Then we're going to go into the second act. And then at the, for the conclusion, he becomes the Hulk again. And then cue the lonely man theme as he hitchhikes down the road, you know? <laughs> right. So he turned on the Hulk twice per episode. Is that, is that what we were saying? That was it. He would turn, it was the same thing. A lot of TV episodes have that. It was the same thing with Kung Fu, like Fai Che Kang would oh, two fight, only fight twice per episode. You yeah. get in the fight at the beginning and then at the end, you know, I think that was because of violence issues or something. But there was a lesson grasshopper to be learned, of course. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I mean, were you guys Hulk fans? Did you read the Hulk comics? Because I remember uh, my first Hulk comic growing up was Hulk 205. And that is one where his the Hulk actually has a girlfriend, Jarella, who was a character created by Harlan Ellison. That's not the She-Hulk? Is that no, the it's she- not the She-Hulk. Is his, is his cousin. But, um, oh, it's his cousin. Though. Yeah, so Jarella dies in this issue. This is the very first issue of the Hulk I can remember reading. And it's like the Hulk's girlfriend dies. And I was like heartbroken. You know, so it's like. Did you hear the Lonely Man song though when it happened? It wasn't on yet, but then they oh, did in the, on the comic books. They would put, they would put, they would call Marvel's TV sensation would be plastered across the covers of the Hulk comic books in the late seventies. So cool. I mean, I yeah. have stuff. The stuff I have from the seventies, the stuff I got later, were like, you know, model kits from like Aurora or NPC, whatever. They were actually the Hulk and 
some of them were some of them were pretty good. Some of them are like that kind of I don't know if it was like that original Hulk where it kind of looked like Frankenstein kind of looking thing, and then right. they developed him to a more you know better character, whatever. But you know that kind of cool vintage stuff. I you know I like. I carried actually this is this is the truth. I had um, gotten the Mego Hulk. I don't know how old I was when I got it. I kept that thing. It was the only Mego I ever had left. It was the only action figure. I had no more Star Wars. I had no more all broken GI Joe gun or whatever. But that Hulk stayed with me till I was 15 or 16. And I finally gave it away to someone. And you know what I'm doing now? Kicking myself in the butt over that. That's for sure. What about you, Max? Always really big in the Hulk. I mean, that was his, that was his thing. He had, he just, and I, and I think, I think the, the reason that he identified with the Hulk is because he was one of the kids that would get picked on and, uh, you know, it's like in that inner rage thing. You always wanted to be able to bust out and, you know, set things right. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think like, I think I was very uh, introverted when I was a kid. That's for sure. You would never know, listen to me now, but that was one of the things like, you know, hey, I'm going to be the Hulk. And, you know, the Hulk, basically the Hulk, if you were the Hulk when you're playing with your friends, nobody could stop him. And he's like, I'm going to be the Hulk. All right, well, I'm just going to smash all you. You know, it's like, well, I'm Batman. Wait a minute, I'm just going to smash you. I'm going to tear down your, you know, whatever. And I think that was, um, oops, that was one of the things. Well, well they, they did do a, a treasury sized comic where the Hulk fights Batman, and really? Batman, Batman punches Hulk. I believe he punches Hulk in the throat, and the Hulk falls down. Like he does not no. wind out of the of, out of Is the Hulk. Possible. Yeah. I got to get that comic. Max is on eBay as we speak. It was a big treasury size dollar size. They were a dollar back then. There you go. But it was a big, you know, wow. digest size book. Uh, not digest. It was a big, like, life magazine size book, you know. They were, that's, that stuff's cool. I mean, that, it, it's really cool to, like, see that kind of stuff. Like, I always thought it was interesting when they, you know, when they do stuff like that, where they take characters and they cross them over, they cross them into mag, uh, comics like that. I didn't really. Yeah. Like, comics but it's cool to see like a cover with something like that completely different but well you know back then too i mean it's it was it was a different time you know you know now you've got the the dc fanboys you get the marvel fanboys right you know and back then as kids we didn't even look at that i mean i you know spider-man comic was a spider-man as far as you know the whole could have been dc at that point because i mean we we crossed you know we cross those those lines all the time, you know, like like you were just talking about, you know, Batman, you know, working with Captain America or Spider Man yeah. and all of you know, uh Superman and you know, Iron Man, you know, flying together to, to save the day, you know, and you know, Hulk would be right in there, you know. So the same people that were very much enjoying, like I said, for me, you know, it was the 66 Batman, you know, and then we went on to the, you know, the Green Hornet and the Wonder Woman and stuff. And then kind of not a whole lot of, you know, superhero stuff until Hulk, the Hulk live action came on and, uh, you know, and, and it was the same fan base, you know, so, and we didn't have to compare, you know, who's better DC or Marvel or who's writing and who's moving and all that stuff that goes on now, you know, with, uh, you know, it was it was just everybody could enjoy it. I mean, if you were a superhero comic book, you know, it didn't matter. And that's what uh, was so cool about, uh, you know, about that time. And, you know, everybody could could relate to all the characters and all the, yeah. you know, you, you know, we always had your favorites, sure. of course. 
Yeah, you know? I mean, the, yeah, the Hulk has that sort of late 70s, you know, that, that you know, 70s cinema existentialism to it that, you know, it's like sort of that, you know, the, he never, he's out there trying to find a cure. I mean, I guess the brilliant thing is, is right, they're really just using the template of the fugitive uh, for the Hulk. He's He's on the run and, you know, McGee is chasing him down because he's wanted for a murder he didn't commit and, and, you know, things like that. And he gets to go from town to town and get some, meet some new guest star every week, you know? So, so did, like I said, I didn't really do comics like that when I was a kid, but I always used to think when I look at like the Hulk and I look at the thing and I don't know if I saw a comic or it's just something, did they ever do a battle between the Hulk? Oh, did they ever do a battle between the Hulk and the thing? Of course they did. They did numerous times. They did. I mean, they, they did the Silver Age and the Bronze Age. I mean, those were the two titans of the Marvel universe. Who could win, the Hulk or the Thing? You know. And, and I mean, how do you write a story for that and like pick one, or do they just always? Break well, you know, they cheat. You know, usually, well, you know, what it was the same thing. Like, like when King Kong fought Godzilla. You know, it's like a sort of a draw. <laughs> it's like there's oh, no yeah. definitive winner. Sure. I mean, and how many times have we seen the race between? Who's faster, you know, Flash or Superman? Superman. Yeah, exactly. You know? And it's, you know, so yeah, so that's, uh, it, it's always, you know, you, your heart goes one way or you, you know, you always like, you know, you got your favorite guy and, you know, uh, I mean, even, even in the, the Avengers, you know, and, you know, Hulk and Thor are fighting or whatever, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, who's exactly. Stronger, who's stronger? And that, that, that's funny the way they play him in the Avengers, they, uh, you know, a little bit differently. Of course, he's evolved throughout the comics as well, too. Every, you know, there's some periods where he has Bruce Banner's brain and he's, you know, he's smart when he's the Hulk. And then there's others where he's just a complete savage. And, uh, you know, they, they've taken him so many different places now. Did you see all this? stuff on the internet with people making CGI, you know, Batman, uh, sorry, like Superman versus Hulk. And yeah. people make all these fan base things, which is, kind Oh yeah. Of, but I, I, I gotta say like, in all honesty, like, yeah, like the, even the Hulk and the new Avengers films, it's, he's great. And uh, what's his name? The, uh, I forgot the guy who plays Mark him. Ruffalo. Yeah. Mark Ruffalo. He's, he's good. I, I even like the one with um, Ed Norton to be honest. I like that a lot. I have to say, I, I'm probably one of the few people that likes the original one. With uh, I think Eric, Eric Bana was it? Yeah, because I didn't love that one. It, but... it was I, I liked the way that Ang Lee tried to make the movie like a comic book. If you watch the movie, every right. time he switches the scene, it's like either a page is turning or it's it's moving across sideways, like you're going across panels sure. and stuff like that. It had a, a I mean, you got Sam Elliott in there, <laughs> yeah, and Ross. And, uh, you know, you had Nick Nolte as the Hulk's father. They went with more of the reason, you know, the Hulk had this inner rage was because his father was, you know, abusive. Right. And boy, how are we tying the Hulk into dads? I mean, visiting our, my dad. And then there's like, you know, angry dad. So, you know, I don't know what, what that's all about. Well, spending, spending a, a Friday evening with dad watching, uh, Watching the Hulk had to be better than a Sunday Sunday afternoon at the park with melted ice cream, right? That, that's true. <laughs> I mean, even with all those movies, all that stuff, I, the TV show was still good. It's like it, it it was really good, and I don't think they – like the movies don't make the TV show look bad in any way whatsoever, in my opinion. I, I thought they still looked really good because you've seen some – there's been some pretty bad stuff over the years. And, you know, even watching some of the older films or TV shows, you're like, oh, all right, well, yeah, it's cool at the time, but now it's a little cheesy. But right. 
that show is good. I mean, other than the clothes being a little bit out of, a little bit, the clothes being out of fashion. I mean, now that's charming so to watch, cool. right? Because you're sort of like, oh, yeah. I remember that. That's like, you know, well, I, I, I remember I like those bell bottoms. They were fantastic. And the thing with the Hulk is you can jump in anywhere. You can watch any episode. It's not like you have to be like, oh, you know, who's this guy again? What's he doing? Yeah. It's not like Game of Thrones, you know? <laughs> you to, like, right. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. But it was it's definitely, it's a good show. I thought it was good. And I don't know. I thought it was definitely enjoyable. I still watch it from time to time now, you know, pop in and see something on the internet. At least you can, now you can pick when you want to watch it, right? Yeah. And they, you know, and they I, did that in the comics again. They did a run where he was just on the run, like he was wandering the country, you know, Bruce Banner, which I, that's, you know, to, to pay, pay homage to the, uh, the TV series. And I, I always liked that version of him just sort of being on the run. And, and I always loved the character of McGee, Jack Colvin, who played the, uh, the uh, reporter there, he was a great actor, and and I loved I loved that character on the show as well. He sort of now like, he got me got me thinking. I'm gonna have to hunt down that uh, that whole series on DVD or Blu-ray or something, Next. right? Next. I think it's out it's pretty cheap. It's gonna get the money out to buy more stuff. Yeah, it wasn't um, up for a while. Like the whole set, you could get it. It could be found pretty cheap. I mean, sometimes you go to Walmart, you can get a box set of them for pretty good. Right. Correct. That's correct. So, I don't know. I think we're probably getting close to time. So, any last thoughts or anything on that? Well, I still I still think that uh, Lou Ferrigno was an awesome Hulk. And uh, the show was great. And uh, the ending was always sad. The ending was sad. Yeah, bit, bittersweet, melancholy would be the melancholy. Way. You know, you're, you're that guy. You know, just always, always ending that, ending it up with uh, hitchhiking down some lonely road somewhere. Oh yeah. Anytime I see the end of that show, it just it brings me back to being probably like seven years old again, sitting in my dad's little apartment, and you know, it, it makes me miss that time period. It makes me miss my dad. Yeah, I think that's that's. I mean, even so, like even you know with Bill Bixby himself, like even as a person, he was like, was he a good dude? I mean, was I never heard a bad word about him, but I didn't really follow. Like I said, I was out of this country for so long. He sure seemed to be. I mean, I, I never heard of him. And, and he, man, he, right? he died fairly young too, from like cancer or something like yeah. that. And, I mean, he's the courtship of Eddie's father. Like, <laughs> yes, he is. Don't get me started on that. Yeah. Oh, back to the dad thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there I mean, we go. Like, isn't this we're tying the Hulk into dads? So it's like, but I mean, there, there's nothing more, iconic of the 70s to me than the Hulk. I mean, I, I really loved it at the time. And, and then just the color scheme in general, green and purple. It yeah, it was good. They did, yeah, it was really good. It was really good. I mean... I assume you guys had the Mego Hulks. Of course I had the Mego Hulks. The Mego Hulks, and let's add to the Empire Toys, the Mego Helicopter. Oh, no, the Mego. The Empire Toys Helicopter and Van, which is scaled for 8 to 12-inch figures. Go figure. <laughs> I love that. It says 8 to 12-inch. See, with the Hulk, and I'm like, Hulk's going to drive a helicopter. Okay, or a van, for that matter. I'm like, what is he, delivering meals? I have no idea, but, you know, and then he comes with, like, binoculars and a microscope. And okay, I'm like, look at a fire extinguisher. You know, he's got all these, like, he's got this, like, microscope. Like, radar gun. Right, he's like, all these crazy, I'm like, what is he going to do with this stuff? But yeah, you got to do They had to do the two-pack, the Bruce Banner and uh and uh, the Hulk, you know, because 
the Hulk ain't, doing, ain't gonna be operating any delicate microscope, that's for sure. That's true. Didn't they I give him a have... Hulk? A Hulk utility yeah. belt? Wasn't that a toy? Remember they used yes. to use utility belts? That was our Remco, I believe. Made that. Remco <laughs> I have the Tara Toys Hulk Hideaway playset, which was basically geared for, I think, the Mego Hulk, obviously, because that was what it was at the time. And it, I have it over there, but it's basically, um, it's almost like a pyramid with the top kind of chopped off. You open oh, it up, yeah. open the four spots, then it's got a spinny thing, and you get a paper version of like a printout of the Hulk and uh, a banner, the banner, and then you spin it and then it's got, you know, some other piece, but it's very, very cool. Like the first one I had was actually mint in box. If you would, it was fantastic. Never opened. The one I have now is not, but it's a really cool, it, it's a cool little novelty thing, you know? And it's like, it was the one, it was the one accessory they ever made for Hulk other than that helicopter and van, which came later. And, so no, is that, is that the same thing? Didn't they do like the Bat Cave as like a Hulk fort or something like that? Or am I just dreaming that? Well, I know we're on audio only, and I'll show it to you after so you can see. Because I actually, I, I had okay. over there, and I had it when I was reorganizing the Toy Room of Solitude here. I bumped into stuff I hadn't seen in years. But um, no, it was pretty. It's a vinyl set, and it, it kind of looks almost like a pyramid. And then the sides just drop down. And of course, you know, the fun part of that, because it's vinyl. You know, of course, when you bought it, it was new. When you drop the sides, they don't drop all the way. Right. So, you know, it's kind of like they're up here, like, you know, up right. here. Try and stand your action figure out. Well, Plastic Meagle Hulk was – in real life, I'm sure the Hulk would hold that down. But Plastic right. Meagle Hulk wasn't yeah. that, that heavy. So, yeah, it didn't work so well. But it was still a cool thing. I had a little computer and stuff and so on. But, no, it's all, it's all kinds of stuff, good stuff. And I think that, you know, they had so much stuff out of that. And I think the timing for that show was the right time. It was the right time to do it. You know, I mean, what do we see on television? You know, again, you didn't have fifty thousand channels and fifty thousand streaming options. You had well, that was a big night. It was it was Dukes of Hazard, then the Hulk. Yeah, and I think Dallas was. Like, after don't that. leave your home. Don't leave your home. <laughs> yeah, and Dallas, that's right. Don't leave your home. And, and it's Friday night. Like you know, no, no, nobody goes. You know, for me, Friday night was like TV night because it. Yeah. Go to school tomorrow. I can stay yeah. up late. You know, you can stay up late tonight. Ooh, yeah. what time can I stay up till? 10 15 yeah. you know <laughs> that's crazy it's crazy you know it's it's definitely um yeah it's it's definitely it's really cool but it was a good show so well i'm i'm max it's been a lot you of are, you are max that's true I'm max. I'm max overnighter it's been a lot of fun uh taking a walk down memory lane this kind of this kind of stuff is just uh this is a lot of a lot of fun to me you know, it's uh, it's good to get it, get with you guys, and you know, just shoot the breeze and uh, kick back old times, and yeah, and uh, you know, talk about uh, great shows from the seventies. Let's do it. I don't have a YouTube channel of any kind, but you can check me out. I've got uh, got some stuff I post and share, and some video little videos I do every once in a while in the uh, Facebook group. Me go like. So, uh, yeah, come and check me out, and hopefully I won't make you angry. You have a lot of videos. You do a lot of videos. You have good videos. Yeah, Max, you do a lot of lives. You do a lot of good videos. Max has good videos. Don't let him – don't let someone say short. He does a lot of videos, and they're good. I am Rich Hurley, also known as Dr. Durant. You can find me at Dr. Durant Sanctum on YouTube, uh, where we talk about fun stuff like this. And I've got a Dr. Durant's Facebook page as well, where you're free to come and hang out. Nice. I like that. I am Lou Malagrana. I approve all their messages. That's true. They're all real. 
we have a Facebook page called <clears throat> Migo Like, but it's not just about Migos. It just happens to be the name that came up there. Uh, plenty of talk on there, plenty of stuff to discuss with topics like this. You can go in and discuss all day, post your opinions. Uh, we have a webpage, MyMigoLike.com, which is mostly action figures, vintage action figures, and so on, but other things in there. We also have uh, some of these guys are sent in, like, Dr. Duran here, some, some vintage costumes, very cool stuff to look at, play sets and so on. And then the uh, last thing is the, of course, the YouTube channel, My Migo Like, where you will find all kinds of ridiculousness and goodness or ridiculousness, whatever. But that, this is going to have vinyl night. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. And thanks for letting us come in and talk with you guys. And, uh, with that. Speaking of vinyl night, just to toss into a thing. There is a Power Records Incredible Hulk record yes. that they put out. There you that go. That is based on the TV show. Now, is that they, a call the David TV Banner. Show? they call him David Banner in that. They don't call him Bruce. Oh, they do? Yeah, and it's based yeah. on the So the, those stories it, on that are based off the TV show. Is that the only time they've used David Banner? I mean, other than the TV show or record, have they ever used that in a comic or it's always been Bruce? I'm sure it's always been Bruce, but they might have used it in the comic to pay allusion to the TV show or, to, or to, uh, you know, a little Easter egg or something like that. But no, for the TV, the, the, the story is that they wanted him named David because Bruce was, uh, they, you know, I don't know why they thought Bruce was, was not a manly enough name. They associated with Bruce with being, well, they, should, call like, Eng- they should have called him Engelbert or something. That probably would have. <laughs> I mean, Bruce Springsteen is Bruce Springsteen, yeah. not manly. Like uh, his like, name is now David, David, David Springsteen. Max Banner. There you Max go. Max Banner. Exactly. Until next time, Hulk Smash. Hello, everyone. Edward German here from the 1950s Science Fiction Podcast. Today, I'm going to discuss an article on 50s Sci-Fi TV entitled Tom Corbett Remembers by Frankie Tom Corbett Thomas. It is a TV retrospective about the TV show Tom Corbett Space Cadet. The article is written by the star himself, Tom Colbert, played by Frankie Thomas. He gives a first-person account of how one of the earliest sci-fi TV shows came to TV. First, the intro into the show. Kellogg's, the greatest name in serials, present Tom Corbett, Space Cadet. This is the age of the conquest of space, 2350 A.D., the world beyond tomorrow. Here at Space Academy USA, the youth of the universe trains for duty, on distant planets, in roaring, in roaring rockets, the space cadets blast through the million miles of Earth to far-flung planets to protect the liberty of the planets, safeguard the freedom of space, and uphold the cause of peace throughout the universe. Sounds like what the Space Force needs to be doing. Ha ha ha. The show was first broadcasted on the 2nd of October, 1950. It was a time during the golden age of science fiction. During that same year, movies like Destination Moon were released, and there were comic books like Weird Science from EC Comics. Sci-fi radio dramas such as Dimension X aired on Nationwide Radio. I've even discussed some of these subjects on my podcast. The author recalled how it all started with sponsorship from Kellogg's Serial Company. After an ad campaign that, after an ad campaign that used catchphrases like Hazard Rocket and Spaceman's Luck to promote the program. The show was given an evening time slot and broadcasted live three times a week. The show's producers used a small pool of actors from New York City for casting. 
Cast included Frank Th- Frankie Thomas as Tom Corbett, two other actors, Alan Markham as Astro, and Jan Meridine as Rogers. It was intended that Tom interacts with the two actors in a Three Musketeers style of adventure. All three were cadets enrolled at an academy set 400 years into the future. Cobert and his fellow cadets traveled around the universe in a rocket ship called the Polaris. Each episode would have him and his crew run, run into danger, which included alien invasion, ex- arresting escaped convicts, and dealing with rocket crashes. The series was loosely based on the sci-fi novel Space Cadet by Robert Hadeline, first published in 1948. Since Hadeline was considered the dean of science fiction, it helped the series' ratings considerably, so much so that this mo- the show was moved from ABC from CBS. At the time, ABC had more affiliated stations than CBS. This was during the early 50s when, t- when the TV industry was expanding much the same way the Internet did, did during the 2000s. The show was on a limited budget and fe- featured rudimentary special effects. These were miniature models and some optical effects that were used to make objects look larger. Just like the franchises of today, the show produced merchandise. There were Tom Corbett lunchboxes, toys, playsets, and comics as well. Today, many of these items would garnish a good, great price for any collector. The show had lasted five years, and the show was still popular. The show changed sponsors to Kraft Foods, and even changed networks again this time to NBC for its final season. There was talk of syndication, but according to Frankie Thomas, it just wasn't meant to be. The show had been in the forefront of the early days of TV and set a trail for others to follow. Before there was the Enterprise, the Millennium Falcon, Battlestar Galactica, there was the Polaris. Before Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, before Luke, Han, and Chewbacca, there was Tom, Roger, and Astro and Tom was the first. If you're interested, you can watch episodes of Tom Corbett's Fish Cadet on YouTube. I have watched one episode already. The writing and acting are excellent, and I encourage you to check it out. If you want to know more about 50 sci-fi, tune into my podcast, 1950 Science Fiction Podcast, where I discuss everything from 50s sci-fi movies, TV shows, radio dramas, and books. Ships are now in range to attack the colonies. Our forces have taken prisoners near the space drone. Battlestar Galactica, syndicated telefilm package, hits this fall. Now, this is one of those things. I remember talking to you about this years ago, and I made this statement. I would watch Battlestar Galactica and Buck Rogers. And you said, well, not at the same time. Battlestar Galactica was canceled before Buck Rogers. And I said, well, I remember... I remember watching it, like, the same week. And he said, well, it must have been Galactica in 1980. I was like, yeah, well, maybe it was. I thought it was just the original Battlestar Galactica. Now I realize that Universal was selling syndicated packages to stations. And these packages would combine Battlestar Galactica stories into many movies. And this was airing in the 1980-1981 season. So it makes it sense was, now. Yeah, it was reruns of the show, basically. It had already been on, and they yeah, and they re-released them as two-hour episodes. That's right. So all the episodes that were connected with a storyline, they just released it as one episode. So I'm so glad this, I was able to read this article, so I know I'm not going crazy. I know I watched them <laughs> both at the same time. 
and that's why we say it was such a magical time being a kid during this time to have all this science fiction hitting us at once. I mean, you had to choose what to watch sometimes, but yeah, there was so much on; it was great. Yeah, this article goes on to call them the Battlestar Galactica movies. So they are essentially twelve Galactica telefilms. Which that's one of the things I liked about Battlestar Galactica is that it had a continuing theme. You had to watch them in order. As much as we say now, all the shows are what's the word for them? When serial, serialized. Ser- yeah, serialized. Battlestar Galactica had that blueprint. And I really didn't notice it back then. I did not I mean, either. Yeah. <laughs> but when we did the rewatches yeah, fairly we, recently, yeah. you realize how well written they were. Well, Froth the Dog here. No, really, this is Guy Gilcrest. Uh, I'm uh, Jim Henson's cartoonist, and all of that stuff. Rolf, get out. Rolf, 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 Rolf. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I'm Bones on Star Trek. Uh, I actually just eat bones. Anyway, hey, this is uh, Guy Gilchrist again, Rolf, get away. Um, and whenever I feel like hearing about Barbara Eden or Raquel Welch, well, this wouldn't be the place to go. But, you know, well, actually it would be because they did some classic sci-fi too. When I like to uh, listen to sci-fi stuff, I listen to Star Pod Log. Now that is log, not frog. Okay, 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 okay. Hi, it's Guy. God bless you. Be kind to everyone, always. All right, this is the special TV issue. So let's not forget all the other shows that we were watching in 1980. Did you enjoy Alice? Yes. It was just a good comedy. I loved all the characters, you know, Mel and the three the three women, Alice and Flo and Vera. Kiss my grits. <laughs> How about Facts of Life? Yeah, that was one of my favorite shows. I love the Jeffersons. I thought that show was absolutely hysterical. Blake 7 out of the UK was popular. One Day at a Time. Candid Camera, Saturday Night Live, Charlie's Angels. Yeah, Charlie's Angels was one of my shows back then. Real People. Yeah, I used to watch that. Yeah, one of those reality shows. <laughs> I mean, to think about it as a reality show, I never would label it such, but you're right. It was about real or, people. Or a news show. You could call it news. <laughs> yeah. Chips. Yeah, remember Chips. Taxi. I had a huge crush on Elaine. Different Strokes. Yeah, that was great. Doctor Who, the fourth doctor, was uh, still active. How about the Dukes of Hazard? Of course I watched that, yeah. I mean, being in South Georgia and that taking place in South Georgia. I just I used to watch it with my family, so with my parents, and I also had cousins that would come over and watch it with us sometimes. And, and it's not like I really, like, associated with it that much. It was just a good show. Oh, did you not think about that? It's like a regional show. It, it took place... No, I guess I, I was too young back then to really notice that. And they would constantly mention, mention going up to Atlanta. Yeah, which was, was a big thing. Like, I mean, because I live so far south, I never went to Atlanta. So it would be like something special to go to Atlanta. And you would think that the you know the people who were more able to travel, I guess, would go to Atlanta. I remember when I moved down south, I was talking to this guy at work, and we mentioned Dukes of Hazard. He goes, they watch Dukes of Hazard up north? I was like... Of course, it's a national show. They watch it everywhere. He goes, I never figured Northerners would like that. (laughs) Really? (laughs) 
Everyone well, I mean, loved the Dukes. My cousin had so many General Lees. That kid had the Matchbox General Lee, the Mego General Lee. Just the General Lee was a character in itself. It, it was, yeah. And everybody wondered how how could they do that thing where they were driving the car on its side. That that was the era of car tricks. Yeah. You know, just before that was motorcycles with Evil Can Evil. So like this was the natural progression. It is enough. Yeah. Family Feud. Yeah, I remember that. Hugely popular show. Remember Richard Dawkins would kiss all the ladies? Love Boat? Oh, yeah. Love the Love Boat. (laughs) You watch that now still. I do sometimes, yeah. (laughs) Fantasy Island? Fantasy Island was great. Happy Days? Oh, yeah. That's where Mork made his first appearance. Yes, and I saw him on it the first time he was on it, yeah. The Muppet Show? Yeah. Heart to Heart? No, I didn't watch that. You watched that. Oh, I had right? a massive crush on Stephanie. <laughs> that's that, that's the, the comment for everything, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's beautiful. I loved Heart to Heart. Three's Company? Oh, yeah. I loved that one, yeah. Hee Haw? Mm, yeah. I used to watch it with my parents. In Search Of? Yeah, I watched that. Letter Nimoy Show. Of course, yeah. And Little House on the Prairie. Yeah, I watched that. I've watched every episode of Little House on the Prairie. It's one of my favorite shows of all time. A massively popular miniseries of 1980 was Shogun. I just watched that recently. It's so well made. I could see why it was so popular. Hey, we got to do a convention report. Not long ago, we went to the Huntsville Comic and Pop Expo. Where we got to see the incredible Lou Ferrigno live and in person. What a great tie-in for this episode. So that's one we've been going to for several years now. And um, and I think attendance was really good this year compared to last year, you know, with COVID and everything. So it really came back. And, um, yeah, it was great seeing Lou Ferrigno again. And we saw Leah Thompson this time from Back to the Future and director of Star Trek Picard. Yeah, I think that's one, one of the conventions that's uh, – Every year it gets bigger and bigger. The momentum grows. The fandom grows. I I would not be surprised if in the future that they outgrew the space at the Werner von Braun Center. Yeah, they could um, like maybe expand more into that center since the center is really big enough, but they only use a small space in it right now. Highly recommend going to that convention. We've been going, as you said, a number of years. No doubt next year's is going to be awesome as well. Talking space pack says eight things. Mork talking ragdoll says seven things. When you pull the string, you can never be sure what these two will say next. And here's Mork from Mork, an Ork egg, and Mindy doll too. Five fun toys each sold separately. Mork doll with talking space pack. Other Mork collection toys are each sold separately. New from Mattel. Starlog Magazine, issue number 40, cover date, November 1980. Log entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction. Flash for Christmas. Where can you witness hordes of winged hogmen engaged in battle with death-dealing rocket ships in the skies over an alien planet? Where else but in the adventures of Alex Raymond's fearless defender of Earth, Flash Gordon. This Christmas, Dino De Laurenti brings his $40 million spectacular version of Flash 
to local theater screens. We've mentioned it before, what an impact this movie made on us. It was awesome in so many ways, yeah. The adventure, the, the sets, and of course the music. Yeah, this was a big budget film, no doubt about it. $40 million back then, that was a huge budget. Well, look at who was in it. You had Max von Schneidau in it. Yeah, a very great uh, villain actor. And, of course, Timothy Dalton, who wasn't known yet, <laughs> but I liked him in it. Yeah, knowing what we know now, as he would be a future James Bond, he had that, that swagger and that swashbuckling attitude back then. He did. He did a great job with that. I mean, of course, we, we had the album for that by Queen, and the album had, you know, I mean, I love how it had the... um the voices from the movie, mm-hmm. a lot of the lines. And then also you look inside the jacket and it had the like actors' names and things like that. That was so great to me. Oh, like, yeah, like Brian Blessed. Yes. He's one, that names. was my first time seeing Brian Blessed. And then like I would see him constantly, but that was my introductory role to him. Yeah, me too. He was a great British actor. And he was on uh, like he was on an episode of Doctor Who and, yeah, a lot Space of Space 1999. Yeah. Super Money Mystery. The cost of making the two Superman movies has been the subject of much speculation. Producer Alexander Salkine estimates the cost for the two films to range from $120 million to $140 million. What the actual cost has been may never be known, not even to the auditors. Well, they talk about how what a fiasco this whole thing is doing to bookkeeping because it was never done before, filming two films at one time. And we know that because of this, now that there are rules that if you film two films at one time, you have to have two sets of books, and everyone involved has to be paid twice. You can't double dip. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good idea to do that now. But back then, hey, we just think, like, they were two great movies. It says, according to court records, Brando was to receive a guaranteed payment of $2.7 million for his role as Superman's father, Jor-El. He also was to be paid 11.3% of the domestic gross and 5.65% of the foreign earnings. That's amazing. It, it like, is like, at what, that time, what, what at that, that like? time yeah. that's unreal. $1,000 a minute or something? I mean, because he wasn't even in it that yeah. much. <laughs> Golden Scroll winners. As revealed in Starlog 35, the pickings for the 7th Annual Science Fiction Film awards were bountiful indeed. As award night neared, fingers crossed reflexively as fans began rooting for their favorite film, actress, actor. On July 26, the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films announced the winners of each category. The envelope, please. Best Science Fiction Film Alien Best Fantasy Film The Muppet Movie I don't know if I'd call that a fantasy (laughs) film, but I guess in technical terms it is. Best horror film. Dracula. Best actor. George Hamilton, Love at First Bite. He was good in that. Oh, yeah, loved that movie. Best actress. Mary Steenburgen, Time After Time. Great movie. Best supporting actor. Artie Johnson, Love at First Bite. Best supporting actress. Veronica Cartwright, Alien. Life Career Awards. William Shatner and Gene Roddenberry. Best Direction. Ridley Scott, Alien. Best Writing. Nicholas Meyer, Time After Time. Best Music. Dr. Miklos Rosa, Time After Time. 
Best Makeup William Tuttle, Love at First Bite Best Special Effects Douglas Trumbull and John Dykstra and Richard Urasik for, for Star Trek The Motion Picture Best Costume Jean-Pierre Dorliac, Buck Rogers in the 25th Century Best Foreign Film Patrick, Australia And Best Film Produced for Under $500,000 The Clonus Horror uh, That's some category, huh? <laughs> But yeah, for those awards, like you can see how, how all of those got the award. I mean, sometimes like for the Oscars, you're, you're thinking, why did that win? You know? Do you know I, mean, I never watched those Oscars, yeah. any of those Grammys. I'm like, who are these people? Half the time I don't even know who they are. They don't exactly portray yeah. anything that I care about. How many times have we said that about Starlog magazine? They talk about things that I care about. These are all movies we've watched. Oh yeah, right. And, and they're actually good. <laughs> Are you on the hunt for rare collectibles? Do you have old toys gathering dust in your attic? Then come on down to IC Toys, 526 East Irish Drive in Nashville, Tennessee. No collection too big or too small. We buy it all. We also sell toys and collectibles from Star Wars, MOTU, TMNT, Legos. We even have lightsabers. Come on down to 526 East Irish Drive and check out some really awesome collectibles at IC Toys. Nashville. Mark Hamill. Luke Skywalker is alive and well and just as curious about what happens in Revenge of the Jedi as we are. So one thing I like about this, and we noticed that in two issues ago in Starlog Magazine, so it was issue number 38, they did mention Revenge of the Jedi. We were getting information on what the next Star Wars film was to be called right after The Empire Strikes Back. Right, so they said it would be Revenge of the Jedi. As erroneous as that was, there was excitement in the air. Just the title alone. There was. and they, But they also made like pre-publicity posters that said Revenge of the Jedi mm -hmm. and patches. Yeah, they sure did. The article starts out by saying, Mark Hamill is an odd but happy bundle of contradictions. He wants the world to know he has a full life apart from his involvement in the Star Wars trilogy, but he cannot escape for more than a few moments his alter ego, Luke Skywalker. So Mark is connected to the character. That's what the article goes on to say. And oftentimes, actors don't want to be connected with a character, most famously his co-star in the movie, Harrison Ford. Right, because, well, Harrison Ford went on to do other things after Star Wars that were very popular. Mm -hmm. But but the thing is about Mark Hamill, though, he, he was already a science fiction fan. That's the big difference. Yes. And because he's a science fiction fan, he does read Starlog magazine. So he asked the interviewer here, David S. Packer, he says, so David's supposed to be interviewing Mark Hamill, and Mark Hamill starts asking him questions. He says, what I want to know from you is how you can say in your Harrison Ford interview, that is Starlog 37, that Han Solo became the dominant figure in The Empire Strikes Back. You know that I did that whole Dagobah scene without human actors. <laughs> <laughs> he has a point. Right, right. I mean... He he did a very good job in Empire, too. I mean, you know, and of course, you're, you're supposed to think the movie is about Luke, really, even though it be, a lot of it did become about Han. He quickly adds, I'm only kidding. 
At first, I was disappointed that I didn't get praise for that sequence, but on second thought, the fact that no one mentioned it seems to me that the greatest compliment of all. And he's right. If nobody mentions how good the special effects are, that means the special effects were very natural. Exactly. And everybody really liked it, too. It's just that, like you don't even think about how much work is behind it. He talks about how hard it was to work because he had an earpiece, and the earpiece would go in and out, so he couldn't get the clear direction that he was supposed to be getting because he was working with a puppet, and the dialogue was supposed to be coming in through the earpiece, and he would know how to respond correctly based on that. That's got to be frustrating. Yeah, the little technology breakdowns. And this is an era where that was not the norm. Now, actors going into it, they realize that there were successors to this, how it's done. Look, George and Frank Oz, they were developing this from the ground up. And and it was brilliant work, too. I mean, Yoda was a, a Muppet, and they they made him look real in the movie. He mentions that there were as many as four manipulators. They were off on the ends of cables and wires, and Yoda was developed without dialogue. And how Frank had to wear a mask to protect himself from the vapors and the mineral oils that were being sprayed on the set. But he couldn't since he was being photographed. So there were communication problems and there were physical problems with him breathing. But he could not portray that that uncomfortability in front of the camera. Yeah, so we don't even realize what, what all was behind all of that. And on top of it, he had the same problem with working with R2-D2. And, and, and you know, now that we think about it, when he says, I was the only human working on these sets, he's right. He came across as having conversations with others, but he was all by himself when he was filming this. Yeah, that's really neat when you think about it. So I guess Kenny Baker wasn't um, in R2-D2 in those scenes. It's funny you mention that because notice what it says. There's less of Kenny Baker inside the R2-D2 in The Empire Strikes Back. Kenny's only there when R2 waddles. He says that there's more Kenny Baker in Star Wars than there was in Empire. And and you can't tell because he's he's inside the the whole contraption. He said the frustrations and the difficulties in working with Empire was that it was a physical job. He didn't mind that, but he said that the what he calls the sword fight at the end took eight weeks to film. He would like to have done all the stunts himself. He did every one but the fall through the window. The insurance company said no to that. Yeah, of course. But eight weeks is a long time. Yeah, that, it was a pretty long scene when you think about it. He said he wanted to do this, that scene, because then he'd be able to brag and say, I did 100% of the stunts. <laughs> Aw, but, well, he did almost all of them. But, I mean, that was the big climax of the movie. Okay, so now there was a rumor going around concerning the making of Empire. Did Frank Oz really spring Miss Piggy on Luke in the midst of Dagobah? Mark Hamill says he sure did. It was a joke. I had asked Frank to do when I first met him, but I didn't really expect him. I expect it when it happened. Or I would have asked that the video cameras be put on. As it turned out, there was no film or tape of it at all. Aww. <laughs> the funny thing is, he said that he's a mimic. And when Frank popped out the Miss Piggy and gave Yoda's lines through Miss Piggy's voice, Frank said, adventure, excitement, a Jedi craves not these things. Follow your feelings. He responded back in a Miss Piggy voice saying, 
Feelings? You want feelings? I'll give you feelings. Get behind this couch and I'll show you feelings, punk. What's in this hole? I've been booked into dumps before, but never like this. Get my agent on the phone. Now, knowing what we know about Mark Hamill and how talented he is as a voice actor, can you imagine him automatically jumping into Miss Piggy voice and throwing it back to Frank Oz? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I can't believe they didn't film that. That's something yeah. that he has to recreate for a convention one of these days. Mm-hmm. Now, there was question about what would happen to the character of Luke if Mark had died in the car accident. He said that he asked George this question. He said, George, if I didn't just break my nose, if I died, would you have recast someone else? And George said, no, I would not do that. There'd be a script change, and I would have found a long-lost brother or sister, something genetic so that the Force could be with them. Yeah, because, I mean, at this point, everyone knew he was Luke. I mean, he will, no one else could be Luke Skywalker. Another mystery comes up. The question is, who is the other who might be a hope for implementation of the Force? Mark says, it didn't sit so well with me at first. He goes, somebody suggested it might be the princess, but I think that that would be a letdown. In any case, she has too much power already. I mean, it's like she's the only woman in the galaxy. If you don't hit it off with her, you become a monk. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't this funny? He had no idea. Yeah, he didn't. Yeah, nobody knew, which which was great that, um, I mean, I don't think George Lucas knew at the time. He was making it up as he went along, too. Judging from Hamill's remarks here and other things that he said, it seems likely that the story has a life of its own. Anyway, and not even George Lucas knows for sure how it will emerge until it's down on paper and then on film. Yeah, George was making it up as he went along. Well, I mean, that's why he had Luke and Leia kiss. Mm-hmm. Even with regards to Darth Vader, the conversation goes on to, did anybody know Darth was your father? And he says, no, nobody knew. I don't even think Al Guinness knew. He goes, I don't know how George made him do that. He said, it's tricky. I remember very early on asking who my parents were and being told that my father and Obi-Wan met Vader on the edge of a volcano and they had a duo. My father and Darth Vader fell into the crater and my father was instantly killed. Vader crawled out horribly scarred and at that point the Emperor landed and Obi-Wan ran into the forest never to be seen again. Do you remember the Clone Wars? They could have cloned my father. It's still all speculation at this point. Sort of like a who shot J.R. Ewing. That is interesting. I think I remember reading that story, too. I like mean, when about it first the came out? Yeah. Because you, you were subscribing to Starlog. Yeah, yeah. And so and so part of that they actually used in the prequels. So, I mean, it, so George did have the idea before. He had some of these ideas for me, just not everything. And we know that Mark Hamill's a sci-fi fan. He's a collector. He goes on to say, back in the early days, I saw some pre-production sketches and was amazed. My character was cowering behind the princess. Originally, she was the lead character trying to save her brother, who was on the Death Star. Then they revised the roles. But on another occasion, I was at the office and I saw an earlier draft of the screenplay than the one I got in 1976. For a while, the Obi-Wan and Han Solo characters were the same person. They split the difference, and the age came out to be about 45. That that would have been really different to have the, the two of them be the same character. I can't even imagine that. He, I mean, his observations are so astute because he actually cares about not only the story, but the characters, the development. He goes on to say that Darth Vader is a good example of changing a character to please the people. 
I think originally, if you follow classic drama, I would have to kill him in the third episode. But by now, he's a cult figure, and in a way, George may not want to do away with him. Ultimately, the Emperor should be the main bad guy. Someone you try to get through nine movies, and then the ninth one you succeed. I don't know who the Emperor is, but I think it's fascinating the way they put him together. Yeah, and I, I mean... I was so young when Empire came out, I barely noticed the Emperor, you know. It's one of those things like even now you look at it and you realize it's a woman with the eyes of a monkey. They were like purposely making this character something that you couldn't quite figure out. Yeah, exactly. And it's just um, in very in very little of the movie. Yes. I mean, Darth Vader is the main villain. Mm-hmm. And why would they even add, you know, someone else is what I always thought at the time. But now you realize why. Yeah, and the article goes on to say that Mark Hamill viewed the Emperor kind of like the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of interesting that that was his thoughts. I mean, we look at all the other interviews with people involved in Star Wars, and they pretty much just talk about their character and the commentary about their role. They're not speculating on anything. They're not... They really don't care. Let's be honest. Most actors don't care about their science fiction roles. This is one of the best articles, Star Star Wars articles out of Starlog, because Mark has a lot to say. And he closes by saying, I got into this role because I heard George Lucas was making a science fiction film. Something like Flash Gordon. But then as the script kept evolving... He found himself in the middle of it, and he was excited because he's never had a science fiction role, and he wanted to be involved. He said a lot of people who didn't like Star Wars like Empire, but all the ones who love Star Wars seem to like Empire too. I find my character has matured, and I find now that the spiritual side of the Force is effective in more ways than any of us realized. It would be interesting to interview him now after the, you know, episodes uh, 7, 8, and 9. This is Tom Higgins from Classic 78, and you're listening to the Star Pod Log Podcast. One of the things that we love about the year 1980 is that it was the year that started the whole craze of Pac-Mania. Pizza Hut and Pac-Man, they go great together. I mean, I played it a few times. I never really got that good at it. Another popular game, Battle Zone, Crazy Climber, Missile Command, Phoenix, Rally X, and Zork. Those were the year's highest grossing video games. The best-selling portable system was Nintendo's Game & Watch. And this is no surprise. What was the most popular home system? That would be the Atari VCS. Yeah, remember before they called it the 2600? They tried to sell it as a video computer system. They tricked parents into thinking that, hey, you'll get a computer when you bring home the Atari VCS. But all we did was play games on it. In television, also came out, and it was following just behind in sales numbers. The best-selling games for the Atari 2600 included Space Invaders, Breakout, Football, Bowling, Night Driver, Air Sea Battle, 
Circus Atari, Straight Racer, and Video Olympics. Which essentially was just a bunch of Pong games. Amazing time to play video games in 1980. The fourth annual Science Fiction Merchandise Guide, 1980 to 1981. This is literally a section in Starlog that is printed on yellow pages. And it gives us an idea of what was going on in the world of science fiction and fantasy during this time period. I want to introduce my very special guest. Captain Foley of Trekyards. Stuart, how did you get into sci-fi as a kid? Everybody asked me my first Star Trek experience, and I don't remember. I have two older brothers, so ever since I was a baby, I was exposed to it. So I don't have a clear definition or memory. I've just always been into sci-fi. And as a kid, where did you grow up, and what was your lifestyle like where you were immersed in this world? Uh, well, I grew up outside of uh, Stratford, Ontario. Um, so we lived in the country, so I didn't have a lot. I couldn't, like, ride my bike to a friend's place because it's, like, 15 minutes away by bike. So um, I just basically hung out and played with my brothers. And like I said, they were big into sci-fi. So big country property. We would go outside. We'd play laser tag. We'd do all that stuff. And... Uh, didn't really have cable for the longest time, so it was VHSs or whatever. And then uh, my grandma got uh, cable in the city, so every time she babysat me, which is quite often, I'd get to watch all the cartoons and all that stuff. And then eventually they, they strung a cable line from between Tavistock and Shakespeare, because we live right in the middle. And uh, finally we got cable, so then I could actually watch the stuff. So my it's that's why certain things that I watch I have completely memorized because we had the VHS. So I just keep throwing the VHSs in because <laughs> we didn't have cable, right? So, yeah. Didn't you think this was an amazing era for toys and science fiction, the early 80s? Oh, absolutely. At the time, you just took it for granted. But you look around now, and it's like everything's coming back retro. Um, and looking back at the 90s stuff, I'm just like, that's not impressive, guys. Sorry, your <laughs> cartoons and your toys sucked. Um, <laughs> Maybe just been my age, I don't know, but yeah. And it wasn't, it was the quality, but the variety. For our era, you mean? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, and we started all the trends. Like, Star Wars started the, the action figure boom, essentially. And then we got the toy commercials that were half-hour-long cartoons. Yeah. <laughs> Transformers, Thundercats. So, yeah, we've kind of set the mold. And there's nothing like it these days. And unfortunately, with today's society, with streaming services, there's no shared childhood, really. Because you stream, like... Even just regular shows, you you don't have four networks that everybody watches on a Friday night, right? So not everybody's watching the same thing all the time. So, yeah, it's just kind of a weird experience. Um, like, th your childhood is always remembered fondly. And uh, not that we did it better, but we did. So... <laughs> <laughs> all right, here's a company yeah. that's listed in Starlog... That is still around, and it's legendary in, in our community. Intergalactic Trading Company out of Longwood, Florida. I mean, they sold just about everything that you could think of. And you look at the listings here. They, they sold blueprints. They sold Space 1999 stuff. Uh, even This is past the shelf life of Space 1999. Yeah. Was Space 1999 big in Canada? It was, yeah. My brothers were really into it. I never really got into it. Um, that's one that I kind of missed out on. But uh, I remember their Space 19... My 
brother had the moon base model with the little eagles. And I was just getting in trouble because I played with the little eagles and, like, <laughs> would lose them. And, I, yeah, they, they didn't appreciate that. Bud Plant. Now, this guy is legendary in the world of comic books. And he was selling special effects in science fiction magazines. He had over 1,500 books, posters. Did you have sci-fi posters growing up? Uh, yes. Uh, I, and I was one of those kids that was more into the ships. I still am. Um, so whenever we went to conventions or anything, I didn't really care about the actor signatures or seeing the getting a shirt with the actor on it. I looked for shirts with the ships. As a result, a lot of these magazines as well, you, like you had the old Fasten Miniatures layout page. I just drooled over that thing, you know, and there was, I was, was upset at the lack of Trek merchandise back then because there really wasn't a lot. And it, it was always listed in the magazine, and you'd order it, not knowing what it would look like necessarily or when you'd get it. Um, and since you were a kid, you had to ask your parents. It was just a whole process, and it was very, very upsetting. <laughs> How about fan clubs? Like, there's a Battlestar Galactica fan club here that says, Battlestar Galactica lives. Send S-A-S-E for information. Yeah, well, I mean, fan clubs. I was a part of the uh, Star Trek official fan club. Got the magazine. Yeah. Um, yep. And also the GI. I was too. Yeah. Yeah, the GI Joe fan club had my little GI Joe membership card. Yeah. And my, and my do- custom printed dog tags. So. Did you used to keep your membership cards in your wallet? Mm, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case Border Patrol asked for it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised I don't have my GI Joe membership card in my wallet now because I still have that. How about this? Under games, Yorkhouse Graphics, they sell war game materials, hex grids, game money. Were you into gaming as a youth? Yeah. Board games were big in my house. We didn't have computers or entertainment systems, so I just remember a lot of board games that my brothers had. And uh, I, I went on to play Starfleet Battles with my brother Steve on a regular basis, which is the hex-based ones. You can get the mega hex with the big miniatures and stuff. And uh, it's one of my favorite games still to this day. Um, we, we don't have much time to play it because it's very time-consuming. But, yeah, games were huge for, for me and my brothers. And uh, they got a lot of classic vintage board games from the 70s. So, yeah, good memories there. Tally Ho Studios out of Canton, Ohio. They sell hand-picked gum card sets, movie posters, skill Stills, scripts, toys, magazines, books, buttons, and collector's items, including James Bond, Doctor Who, The Prisoner, Star Wars, it goes on and on, Bruce Lee, Clint Eastwood. Doctor Who, was that big in Canada? Not really, no. Were you a Whovian? I was not. I kind of got into it with Matt Smith. No, actually, uh, Eccleston is when I started watching. How about James Bond? Yeah, huge James Bond fan. My parents were as well. Um, my mom really liked Sean Connery, <laughs> um, but I remember growing up with the Roger Moore movies, Same here. and we had like all those on VHS. So again, those are ones that I've watched over and over again. Didn't you find that a missed opportunity, not having Roger Moore toys? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I would have loved some James Bond spy games. Octopussy and For Your Eyes Only, those were huge hits. Moonraker. I wanted the Moonraker shuttle. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Um, that's a perfect market, but... Missing out. Here we go under model kits. Centuri flying rockets. Now this is something I never got into. Were you ever into real flying rockets? Well, we lived in the country, had a four and a half acre backyard, so yes. Yeah. There was a lot of rockets Tell firing. Us about it. 
Um, well, again, it was my brothers. They were the ones that were into it. They'd have they get the kits where you build the model, and then the worst part of it all was the misfires. You'd, you'd either light the fuse and nothing would happen, or if it was one of the remote activated ones, click it, nothing happens. So you and you don't want to get close to it just in case because every now and then it would go off. But yeah, I mean, it's, watching them shoot up was awesome, and then the hardest part was. Well, generally finding them afterwards. Um, a lot of times the parachutes didn't work properly um, or they got stuck in trees, which was a pain. But it was, it was fun. It was a fun childhood doing that kind of stuff. How long did those rockets last? Like what was the reusability? Uh, for the, the main parts, the main assemblies, um, I don't even remember. I know you could swap out the engines after they're fired, but, yeah, they, they, they had a certain, certain amount of usage, but I can't remember what it they're was. They're fairly durable? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think they're way more so durable now. And now we got all the fancy ones, like the, you get the TOS Enterprise that's a, a rocket. It's like, so didn't have that stuff, though. All right, now there's a section, photographs. This is the era before the Internet, and this is why print medium was so important to us. Were you a fan of just looking at photographs of your favorite movies? Absolutely. Starlog. Like, <laughs> magazines would be well-thumbed in our house because they're always being looked through. And like I said, it's always those full-page ads for, like, fast and stuff that I just stared at. <laughs> and just, just I would just stare and dream. That's the best way I could describe it. Yeah, absolutely. And then you go to the conventions, and there was no fast and miniatures. You're like, where are all these ships that I see in the magazines? But you had this mail-in for them, right? So, yeah. Imperial Trading Post out of Tahoe City, California. Once again, send SASE for latest catalog of sci-fi stills, slides, enlargements, custom-made posters. How cool is that? Over 4,000 scenes available from all major films and TV titles. I mean, this is the era of The Empire Strikes Back, and yeah. I think that their stills were just so striking. Yeah, I remember a lot of the, uh, the posters that both me and my brothers had. They'd usually get torn because we would either tape them up or use the thumbtacks and then thumbtacks would be pulled out. But, uh, yeah, I mean, movie stills were what we had. And unfortunately, a lot of times you didn't even have the VHS because, you know, you just stare at your wall. At, at this point, we didn't have a VCR in, in yeah. 1980, 1981. Yeah, exactly. And even if you did, some of the VHSs when they first came out were quite expensive. So you look at $1,200 yeah. In 1980, money expensive. Like, that's ludicrous. I didn't even know at this time that was possible to watch movies at home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I, I was kind of at that age because I was born in 74. So I don't really remember not having a VCR. I remember I was young enough when we got one. That was exciting. But, you know, I was kind of grew up with one. So. Oh, wow. Okay. See, so well, being in the country, I think it was more of a necessity for your household, yes. I assume, because we didn't have one. We didn't have one till. I'm going to guess maybe 1984, around there. Yeah, I'm not sure what year we got ours, but, yeah, no cable, like I said. So we had three channels, maybe four if the weather was good. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so. I remember the first thing that I recorded was David Lee Roth's California Girls because that was, like, the closest thing to nude women that I could find on TV. I just kept watching it. So whatever year that video came out, that's when yeah. <laughs> that was when we got VCR. Yeah. Yeah, my brothers had some movies um, – I can't remember what they were, but the minor nudity, whatever. And I remember <laughs> throwing them in occasionally. Um, I thought it was a big deal and it was all taboo. But now I just look back and go, just shake my head, man. What the hell? All right, Star Post Enterprises out of DeSoto, Illinois, sells 
posters and iron-ons. Do you remember the era of you get an iron-on and then you had to get it heat-pressed at a store and you choose the color T-shirt? I don't remember that part. I remember the iron-ons, though, that my mom would do. And after, like, ten washes, they started to flake off. Yeah. Or they were... Yeah, glittle on it. Yeah, or they were, like, sticky. Yeah. <laughs> like they, they just weren't very good. But, yeah, that was a big deal. Like, ooh, amazing technology. You can make your own shirts. <laughs> wow, the times have changed. Here's one, Publications, A Change of Hobbit out of Los Angeles, California. It's a bookshop that sends, uh, you send them a want list, and they will offer a free search service. Did you ever order books through the mail? Mm, no, I can't say as I did. I, we had Columbia Video House and yeah. CD House. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Paid 99 cents for 10 CDs. Yeah, um, but no, not books, really, no. Records and tapes. JPM Recording Studios out of Witter, California. Science fiction sound effects as advertised each month in Starlog magazine. These incredible sounds were recorded in widescreen stereo and frequency response. Seven ninety-eight plus one dollar shipping for LP or cassette. Do you remember having any recordings of sound effects? Uh, recordings of sound effects, not so much. I do remember a lot of LPs in my house. My dad had some. My brothers had some. Plus, I had the little forty-fives with the storybooks. Of course. Which that was. You will know it's time to turn the page when R two beeps like this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Those were over listened to by me. I had a little Mickey Mouse um, record player as well for my room, okay. so I didn't have to use the main one. <laughs> um, and then yeah, tapes, but a lot of soundtracks I remember, but not sound effects necessarily. Uh, yeah, I remember having a sound effect records. It was like a Halloween sound effect record, spooky sounds. I have those now, but we, yeah, did, we yeah. didn't have them at the time, yeah. Not, not, like, like, not our family, anyway. So what do you think about that, this new resurgence of people collecting not only vinyl, but the latest thing, collecting cassette tapes? Isn't that wild to think about? It's, it's really trendy now, and the prices are borderline ludicrous for some items. It is crazy, and I wish I would have kept more stuff, because I got rid of a lot of cassettes when the c- CDs came out. I was like, these just take up a lot more room, and they're just not as reliable don't you remember the pencil to fix your thing, <laughs> to fix your tape? Like, yeah. Um, so, I mean, everything that's old is new again eventually. Fashion, you see it all the time. And vinyls didn't really surprise me. Cassettes blow my mind why, yeah, yeah, yeah. why they would exactly. come back. You know what I mean? So, And most of the time, they don't work right. Yeah, it's, it's a weird anomaly. I don't, I, I don't understand it, but, you know, everybody's got their thing. And We're students. It's awesome opportunity to go down memory lane with you what are some of your favorite toys of the year 1980 and 81 80 and 81 wow i've been like eight don't know if i recall well probably my star wars figures empire strikes back figures yeah absolutely um i loved my han solo and my bezbin luke um had the falcon yeah there's there's always always ones i wanted that never that i never got but did you end up buying them through mail order or through a store uh, those, those are your stores. We drive into town and get some. Uh, but then you collect the proof of purchases. I remember getting mail orders. But you'd send away for it. And like four months later, it would finally come. Um, and like I said, if you had to include a money order, you had to get your parents to help you. So every day, getting home from school, getting off the bus, got a laneway to walk down. But you'd always check that mailbox first to look for your p- parcel. And if something came in in your name, that was just amazingly cool as a kid. So... Yeah, those were those were fun days. 
Stuart, you have an awesome production, your YouTube channel. Tell our listeners about it. Yeah, it's called Trek Yards on YouTube. It's, we're in our seventh year. We're going to be hitting our eight-year mark in October. And uh, we just talk about ships and tech of Star Trek. And then we also have a spin-off show called Fleet Yards, which is like ships from other sci-fi franchises. Um, but we've kind of expanded and grown a bit into reviewing all the new Trek content. And as a result, we also do other sci-fi like Lorville or Obi-Wan Kenobi now. Uh, we just love talking about sci-fi, and uh, we've got a great community. So if you haven't heard about Trek Yards, look us up and check us out and join up. Or we'll put a link in our show notes, so check that out. As always, we're going to conclude by considering one of the advertisements in Starlog Magazine, the Starlog Trading Post, advertising Starlog Press poster books. I remember getting some Starlog posters because you were a nerd. You hung up posters in your room of your favorite TV shows and movies, just, just like my brother and I did. I got the magazine from the newsstand. This one advertises poster book of Moonraker. Also, science fiction superheroes, posters of Superman, The Incredible Hulk. They even have a Rocky II Celebrity Poster Heroes magazine. Five magazines in total, and the magazines were just all posters. Order all five for only $5, plus $1.50 postage. Or East Poster Book for $1.50 plus postage. Sorry, but poster book number two is sold out. That must have been the best one, huh? But, but I mean, it didn't bother you that the posters had those little, the creases in them where they've been it. folded? Yeah. I got over it. You know, during that time period, my brother and I would wrestle so much, we'd throw each other against the wall that most of them got ripped down, and we had to put them back up again, and then they get ripped down, and we have to put them back up again. So all the edges were frayed anyway. All the mm-hmm. corners were messed up. Amazing. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu.